Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, June 30th, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. So there's breaking news out of the Braves camp that Freddie Freeman, uh, last year's, I mean, he's kind of the fan favorite of the Braves. Um, I think his daddy was Mr. Ed with all them teethy. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> he does have nice teeth. He and John Elway need to have a contest. Who's got the biggest smile with the mostest teeth? Um, I mean, we know Freddie Mercury had too many teeth, right? Mm-hmm. I think. Quick yes. story, Mike. You weren't here. Good morning, Freehold. Um, but but many many moons ago, um, I read an article. I read this craziness, and I read where Freddie Mercury could hit certain octaves because his mouth was bigger because he had more teeth. So I come in one Monday morning and said, I read over the weekend that Freddie Mercury had too many teeth, and and Rev looks at me like. <laughs> Do really? what? I really? mean, R- Freddie Mercury had too many, too many teeth? teeth, and and then so so the next day Rev comes back and he goes, "You're right." Yeah. I mean, I, I read it too. I mean, he he's had got, too many teeth. He had too many teeth, <laughs> and uh, and that's how he was able to hit these notes. And I mean, he was kind of a um. I mean, Mercury could have been an opera singer had he chosen to be. I mean, he was unbelievably vocally talented, um, and obviously an iconic frontman for a legendary rock and roll band. We didn't throw them around. Uh, on Mount Rushmore, but you certainly could. Oh, I Queen? mean, Queen would be absolutely, absolutely one of the bands that you could consider for um, inclusion into uh, the rock and roll Mount Rushmore. But um, but anyway, so so we know Freddie Mercury had too many teeth. I think somebody needs to do an audit on Freddie Freeman and John Elway <laughs> to see if indeed they have. I'm pretty sure Freddie Freeman paid for his teeth. Yeah, I, I think mean, he's got some too, of those veneers perfect. or whatever you call yeah. them. Uh, that's what happens when a good old boy makes a bunch of money. Sure. He says, I'm going to make some personal improvements. Um, but this story is very interesting. It's, 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 I mean, it's weird. It is. Now, this is Give our- Give the our, accounting that you've heard. Uh, this is our sports report brought to you by Bird of a Thousand Gods. Of Bird course. of a Thousand One Gods. <laughs> okay. Uh, so- this goes back to, remember, before the season, as soon as the lockout got over and I was on the radio saying, sign Freddie, it's time to sign Freddie. I mean, well, they I won was a just, championship. Everybody right. felt good about I, what was going on. And, and a lot of Braves fans felt like, I mean, Freddie should be a Brave for life. But then when that whole thing went down, whatever that thing was, Freddie ended up at the Dodgers. So everybody's kind of wondered what was the behind-the-scenes story on that. Freddie came back, of course. The Dodgers played the Braves this weekend, and it was a big emotional weekend. They gave him his World Series ring. And, and he smiled. He smiled and cried. And you couldn't get out of the way of them teeth. He cried like crazy uh, and cried again. And then the next time he came up bed, he cried again. It was just one of those weekends. Very emotional. Freddie Mercury's got more teeth than he did. That's why he's crying. <laughs> very, very emotional. And then I guess it was day before yesterday they announced that Freddie had fired his agent. So... You know, something's going on there. Why did he fire his agent and why now? So there is a reporter named Doug Gottlieb who tweeted out yesterday. He's respected. I mean, Gottlieb does a lot of these sorts of stories. He tweeted out yesterday that Casey Close, who is Freddie's agent, never told Freddie Freeman about the Braves' final offer. That's why Freeman fired his agent, because he was never told about the final offer and that's what Freddie found out while he was in Atlanta this weekend. So he was obviously hanging out, you know, saw the general manager and I guess team executives. And if you read what's behind the story, he must have they must have said, hey, you know, why didn't you take that last offer? And he's like, what last offer? I mean, I'm kind of guessing that that's the background here. And uh, and so he said he found out this weekend in, 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 while he was in Atlanta that that last offer was made, but he didn't know about and that's really not rare to happen. I mean, according to Doug Gottlieb, you know, that does happen. Sometimes agents don't 
I guess, pass every bit of information back to their client. Um, but the uh, implication here is that Gottlieb said that Close knew that Freddie would have taken the last Atlanta deal. So he didn't tell him because he knew he would take it. And of course, I guess ultimately there's a few more dollars in, in the Dodger deal. But, and, but the agent's worth like a billion bucks. I mean, I think the agent has a net worth of somewhere, I mean, like 1.2 that's, billion. That's what I saw. I and saw if I'm not mistaken, he has a tie into Fox News. Yeah, he's married to Gretchen Carl Carlson, who okay. used to be on Fox and Friends. I saw a couple of different accountings on his net worth. I saw one that said it's $1.2 billion. I saw another one that says his his sports contracts are a billion and his um, – his net worth is like $100 million or something like that. He ain't getting up at 4.30 to do a conservative talk radio show. Uh, no. Okay. Unless he Good wants deal. to. We can, we can establish that. Now, um, I'll say this, that... Uh, guys, if you let him start talking about the Braves, it's like me and Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> there is no end to this. Let, let me go get a cup of coffee. You continue, Rev. I'll be back in just a bit. I, I just want to make sure, since we covered that side of the story, uh, we have to say that, that um, Casey Close has tweeted out that that's entirely false. And he's disputing that fact. He said he'd go under oath and talk about it. Um, so for for what it's worth, that's that's the rest of the story. But Freddie fired the guy. Freddie fired for him. some reason. Yeah. Uh, Gottlieb says it's because of this. Uh, the agent says no, that's not the case. So we'll find out. Uh, maybe we need a January sixth committee. What is Liz Cheney doing? She won't have much to do <laughs> after um after November. She's of hugging this year. witnesses. Yeah. Well, I'll see that. Uh, she won't have much to do after November of uh of this year. So we'll put her on charges committee to find out whether. Uh, Freddie's telling the truth, or but you're right. I mean, I, I assume or would imagine that Freddie bumps into somebody in the Braves organization. Might have been a former player, might have been a current player, might have been somebody in the front office, and says, "Um, hey man, wh- why did you take the last deal?" And says, "What do you mean last deal?" I mean, I'm like you. I think that's probably the way uh, it went down and played out. Um, but but the irony in this is Freddie's from California, so we all believed that if he wanted to leave, it was because he's from California. He wins a championship. Um, when better to leave than than while on top? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, there's some. I mean, obviously, there's there's some advantage to that. So you know, because Freddie's formerly of California, he wants to go back home. Um, Olson, the guy the Braves signed from, it's kind of weird. Uh, he was in Oakland, if I'm not mistaken, which is in California. Uh, he's from Atlanta or the Atlanta area, so it's kind of a homecoming for Olson and a homecoming for Freeman as they swap spots from one coast to the other and kind of go back home. Um, but it's a pennant race now. I will say this. Um, the Phillies aren't the same team without their bat in the lineup. I mean, that, that kid means so much I was gonna say to the them. Mo- the most important part of this story uh, from the last few days is that uh, the Braves beat the Phillies last two nights. So Yeah, but, the, but, the, but I'm telling you, man, in all honesty, <laughs> the Phillies without Harper are just not – I mean, they're not a threat. That I mean, was, Bri- Bryce Harper's a big bat. Bri- Bryce Harper's a legitimate power, you know, average. I mean, he's, a, he's an all-around good hitter. And him not in that lineup, it, it really embarrassed. And I'll tell you, it's, it's, to me, the interesting story during the Dodger Braves series, and the Braves beat the good teams. I mean, they went five and three against the Giants and Dodgers. Probably could have gone six and two, but they've won some games. Like I mean, you got this hundred sixty-two games. You win them on a on a late hit. You lose them on a late hit. the The issue was what Clayton Kershaw had to say. I mean, as I kind of you know all the uh, innuendo of that weekend. To me, Kershaw got a little bit bothered that Freddie seemed to be attached or so attached to his former team. Um, Kershaw kind of insinuated, hey, we're a good team with good guys too. You, you know, Freddie right. Freddie cried one time. Okay, I get it. Homecoming, you know, um, but romancing fact, about days gone by. Fun fact, who represents Kershaw? Uh, the same guy. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's all about the money. I mean, it always is. Charles Broccoli said it famously. <laughs> it's not about the money. It's about how much money. 
And in sports and entertainment, it's no different than uh, any of our walk of life. I'd never do that unless somebody paid me enough. Uh, you know, that's kind of the nature of uh, the American economy, whether it's based. But I did find Kershaw's comments very interesting. Uh, it was almost a challenge to Freeman. Are you with us or not, man? You know, are you half married to them and half married to us? Are you? And Kershaw's a no BS kind of guy. I mean, he's one of these. I mean, he's earned the right to say those sorts of things. And um, uh, the Dodgers are still, I think, a little bit better. I don't think the Dodgers are a lot better than the Braves because they're uh, Scherzer and and we're really getting into baseball now. Scherzer and Kershaw are on the backside of their careers. I mean, they're not electric anymore. They're good. I mean, they're still elite major league baseball pitchers, but they aren't shut down. You know, get out of my face. Kershaw's going to uh, just throw a two-hitter every third game. I mean, they're just not like that, and Scherzer is not like that as well. Hey, speaking of choices, um, there's an interesting debate we're having in America today. I went back and looked last night. Um, I want to get to the January 6th commission because uh, Rev and I text yesterday, Brett Baer was walking that crap back like I don't know what yesterday on a six o'clock show now andy i'm McCarthy, glad you caught that too andy well i watched it just for that but i know that bear takes his bear's got a job bear is a fox news personality but he's not i don't think the mainstream media has disdain for brett bear i would imagine a bear um a day at the braves game with brett bear would go something like this he bumps into chuck todd and chuck todd says hey brett how are you hey chuck how are you um why are you still at fox man you know, why, why are you still over there with Tucker and Sean and all those hardliners? I mean, hey, why won't you come on NBC News? We've got a place for you here. Uh, Chuck Todd, better be careful because Brett Bear may be enough hosting uh, Meet the Press. But you say, I mean, would you agree with that, that Bear has kind of a foot or he tries to figure out a way to have a foot in each camp? And we've said that all along. I mean, we he, he like... wants to be a respected journalist. Yep. Uh, and, and he thinks that um, there's some, uh, some taint that comes along with being at Fox News. Um, and he's not giving opinions on this show. No, I mean, but he's, it's, he's it's kind of a news report, show. Reporting and interviews. It's as close to the six o'clock news as any cable news show has. Yep. But Bear yesterday really tried to um, strategically walk back um, some of the comments he made because his comments um, the day before yesterday, which would have been Tuesday, were that you know this has moved the meter. I mean, it was almost like that's not on the teleprompter, Brett. Um, eek, don't read things that aren't on the teleprompter when you're not a an opinion monster uh but he kind of turned into an opinion monster for a second or two and he said um about cassidy hutchinson's testimony this is really moving the meter um oops and now we find out that there's not corroboration in fact there's some views or there's some opinions out there um of people who were in the or at the epicenter of this episode in american self-governance that say completely or things completely different so here's the here's the struggle now andy mccarthy um actually did a lot of um i called it highfalutin cya you know it's like um there are some believable parts to this hearsay uh he did kind of say because mccarthy's words the day before were devastating but this article is devastating this news is devastating this testimony is devastating moving the meter is not quite as um strong a language as devastating but moving the meter means you know trump's having trouble here devastating trump's done i mean he's done but mccarthy yesterday as long as that article and mccarthy's a lawyer former u.s district attorney i mean he's going to always have an expansive way of explaining things but mccarthy said yesterday that um basically uh she never said what she knew to be true now, now remember the day before he said it's devastating right. but the day after he says 
Uh, it's not a, he didn't really walk it back. He created a legal word salad. And, and it sounded like me highfalutin CYA. In fact, I commented <laughs> on the comment section, highfalutin um, CYA. Uh, I, I'm going to walk this back, but I'm not going to walk it back the way Brett Baer did. Uh, I'm not going to be kind of, um, as a matter of fact, I may have blown this yesterday. I mean, Baer sounded like, um, that, that, that'll teach me a lesson. I'm, I'm kind of a news guy. Uh, let, let Sean and, and Tucker and all those, uh, Jesse Waters, let all those guys do this. Um, that's not my role here. And I let my giddiness get the best of me uh, for a moment or two. And, and out of that came, I got a bear walking back some of this. But, um, but as we, as we kind of work through the news, I want to play a game with our listeners this morning. Um, I've got two games I want to play. And it's one's about January 6th. The other is about the abortion law. Because Philip Lowe said yesterday in our, in our studio, remember tomorrow we're having a fun and frolicking uh, Friday edition of Wake Up Carolina. Um, and we've got an invitation out to Jay Jordan and Mike Rickenbach. I don't know if they'll come or not. Uh, they, they're kind enough to adjust their schedules to be here Friday. Uh, Philip came by yesterday because I think he's got some things to do today. And, and tomorrow we're, we're not doing – they're not invited tomorrow is how it is. And, uh, and we worked on our show, and we'll announce mm-hmm. today at some point in time what we're going to do tomorrow. But, um, but when Philip said, you know, are we going to tell a woman who got raped she must have that baby? Now, now, if you're an activist, that's an easy position. If you're a pundit, that's an easy position. If you're someone trying to win elections, that gets real complicated. That gets extremely complicated. As someone who has a radio show and is afforded the opportunity to give his opinion, expressive opinion after expressive opinion, accurate opinion after inaccurate opinion, after accurate opinion after inaccurate opinion, I mean, I'm not held accountable to any of that. I'm not, you know, trying to win elections. I'm not trying to build a co- uh, you know, cohesive body. I'm not trying to be a part of political movement. Um, I'm cheering along these pro-lifers because I think Roe v. Wade was terrible legislation based on um, unconstitutional law. But, but now Philip and Jay and Mike have to uh, dig down deep and find out exactly where they stand on the issue of life. And I think Philip said it very eloquently when he said, "I believe life begins at conception, but I'm in charge." of trying to win elections. I mean, it's not just my election I'm trying to win. It's, you know, do we want Republican majorities in the, in the House, in the Senate, in, in the, you know, in, in the federal government? And if we do, are we going to say, is it attractive or not? Can you win elections or not saying to the American people, I think a woman who's been raped must have that child. I think a woman who's been forced into an incestuous relationship must have that baby. I think a woman whose life is threatened must be forced to deliver that kid in the name of life. I think there, there are two kind of arguments we're making here. One is philosophical. For some, it's spiritual. For me, it's spiritual. But it's, you know, God is the giver of life. I think we should always do everything we can to protect the sanctity of life. But as we legislate, how do you legislate? Would you rather be in the majority or minority? You'd much rather be in the majority. So as, as, as folks who are in charge of legislating, whether at the state level or the federal level, are they going to? I know how we feel. I know how many people feel. They feel that the woman who's been impregnated by a rape is no less pregnant and the life is no less valuable and no less God created than one that is not. But let's be honest. When, when, when delegations vote, when legislative bodies vote, majorities win. Fair enough? I mean, majorities win when you cast ballots. Where do we land? 
in that spectrum of no abortion under any circumstance or infanticide. I mean, if, if that's the extreme positions, no abortion under any circumstance, under any condition at any time, and the other being the Ralph Northam. You know, the baby will be born and we'll keep the baby comfortable and then we'll decide mm. whether to kill the baby or not. I mean, that's evil and wicked. But but where do we land? Where, where can we cohesively agree and, and live with one another as Republicans while trying to win elections? That's that's a complicated question. And I could just tell Philip, Philip's not nervous about anything. I mean, Philip's just one of these kind of a gunslinging politician who isn't afraid to really say what he thinks about whatever it is. But I, I detected in him yesterday, uh, and th- this is going to get complicated. I mean, did you? I mean, it, it, and once again, he's very aggressive at answering. The, I mean, he didn't shy away from it, and he answered the question exactly. But I well, just detected he did, he did in him. set up the contrast between his personal feelings, correct, and and what you're talking about the political reality because they had they do have to make law. And they do have to consider political ramifications. Very well explained. And and that's where we are. Where are you? How understanding? I didn't say sympathetic. How understanding are you as a Republican voter for someone who says, I'm trying to, wi- ri- I'm trying to walk that tight wire the best way I know how? Take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Here's Dale in Florence. Morning, Dale. More guys, and, and, and I made my position pretty clear many times, but I, I'm, I'm not an idiot about it. I do understand that these are tangled, unbelievably complex themes that we have to try to figure out how to get a hold of. Now, I did read an article the other day, the Columbia... NBC station, TV station, whatever it is, on their website that our current six-week heartbeat bill that I guess it's gone into effect does make provisions for rape and incest up to 20 weeks. Uh, that, that was what I read in that article. I don't know if it's true or not, but we do have that provision here. Um, my point has always been that we shouldn't let the circumstances surrounding the conception of a child become a reason to kill that child. And I still believe that with all my heart. But I do understand that there are other opinions and that they're tough to figure out. What I don't understand, I guess, the whole Democrat Party to me is a party of small percent victims. And that's what we've got here. We're talking about those three things, rape, incest, life of the mother. You break them down together and it comes to, what, four and a half, five percent individually it's one to one and a half percent per category. Again, we're talking about an extremely small percentage. And I understand, and Lord knows if it was one of my daughters when they were a teenager, I don't know what my reply would have been. I didn't have to, I didn't have to walk that mile. But we are talking about a very small percentage. It's the same thing with a homosexual activity in my entertainment. There's such a small percentage of the population. Why do I have to see it in 100% of my entertainment? Well, we're same thing here. That's all we're. It's 100% of what we're talking about, but it's a very small percentage of of what's really going on here. You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. Appreciate it. I had to learn a word yesterday. Ectopic. I mean, I was reading about rape, incest, life of the mother. 
uh, ectopic preg- pregnancies. I don't want to go into detail. We may have a gynecologist or a doctor listening, and I'll make a fool of myself. But it's something to do with the fertilized egg and the fallopian tube and uh, the pregnancy, the ectopic pregnancy, E-C-T-O-P-I-C, ends up um, endangering the life of the mother. I mean, that's it's a, it's a form of pregnancy that involves the fertilized egg um, not making its way, whatever. Whatever the fertilized egg does with the fallopian tube, it doesn't happen uh, the way it should. And out of that comes a, a threatening situation for the mother. So, so I made notes here, ectopic pregnancies. I think that's a reasonable exemption. I mean, you're still destroying life. You still are, you know, killing an, an innocent, unborn, in my humble opinion, baby. But, but I can't, I can't pursue perfect. I mean, that's. I think when you when you accept politics, you give up on perfect. I mean, it is. is. Um, a dictator believes he knows exactly how to govern a nation, and if you got a benevolent dictator who has the best interests of the people, he um he governs over. It probably is. I mean, in all honesty, a great dictator is probably the best form of government ever in the history of mankind if you've got a genuine, sincere, benevolent dictator. But his son may not be. And, you know, the next one that comes along. So, so we got this, this idea or notion that collectively we govern ourselves. There's, I mean, it's the genius, but the danger of self-governance and, and a representative republic. But, but when you go to um, rape, I mean, I, you know, I'll go on the record. If I were a Republican— in America today, running for office, I, there's no way I could force a woman who's been raped to have that baby. I'm not defending that it's not a, a kid. I mean, I, I don't say that, you know, that, that, that fetus has one former fetus to another. I mean, I accept those that were born. You know, when the, when the fetus is created as a result of rape, as a result of incest, as a result of um, this uh, ectopic pregnancy, I, I don't discount that life in no way, shape, or form would I discount that life. That life, here I go, you ready? This is the dangerous word. That life deserves to live as much as I did. That life deserves a chance to, um, you know, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness as much as anybody does. But there's a political reality. Like Dale said, I'm not naive to any of this. I don't defend everything that I legislate. I mean, there, there's certain legislative uh, parameters that we have to kind of, I don't know, bump against, run into. Um, I, I'd love to see us take it more seriously. Uh, so, so I've got this list, rape. I would be, if I were an elected official, I am as pro-life as I've ever been in my life. I believe that it's going to be complicated to win elections if you tell women that have been raped, you must have that baby. I can't go there. I'm sorry. I can't go there. Um, incest. I think a woman who was forced into an incestuous relationship can't be told by the government you must have that baby. Once again, friendly reminder, I think that life is just as valuable, just as important in God's eyes as it is in uh, in our eyes. But then you get to ectopic pregnancies. There's enough medical evidence now to show that if indeed that's the case, this woman's life is in, in dire straits. I mean, she's severely threatened and I don't say death is imminent, but it's highly likely. Um, so those three, life, incest, excuse me, rape, incest, life of the mother, what we refer to in politics as the Hyde Amendment. I mean, if you've done this for a while, you kind of, that's kind of the safe spot. I mean, if you're a Republican, you know, the Hyde Amendment seems reasonable. Rape, incest, here's where we go. Right? And here's where a debate's going to start. Um, traveling to another state. I went back yesterday. See, you folks are so fortunate to have me doing the heavy lifting. I went back and read the Kavanaugh concurring opinion. It seems to me that Kavanaugh suggests 
that they are willing to hear whether someone should be allowed to travel to another state and have an abortion, abortion tourism, abortion traveling. Um, you know, Kavanaugh's a devout Catholic. Amy Coney Barrett's a devout Catholic. Um, Catholicism is probably as pro-life a strain of the Christian faith as any religion on earth. Um, but Kavanaugh, in his concurring opinion, once again, I'm, I'm reading between the lines and I'm parsing words and I'm, I may be putting words in his mouth. But when I read the Kavanaugh concurrence, it seemed to me that he was, okay, if, if we ever have to deal with rape and incest life of the mother as a court, as a judiciary, I, I kind of know where I stand there. And, and it con- contradicts my religious and, and avowed belief. But that the, the, the notion of someone from South Carolina, because they can't have an abortion, traveling to Washington, D.C., because they have very liberal, um, there may be laws enacted that prohibit women from leaving the state of which they reside and were impregnated and going to a state just for the convenience of having an abortion, Kavanaugh and Thomas and their concurrence led me to believe that they're willing to go down that road. Mm-hmm. Now, now, once again, state Supreme Courts will probably decide this if it ever makes its way to the, to the U.S. Supreme Where do we land? That's the question I pose to us. I mean, as a group of listeners, as, as a committed body, uh, that joins every single morning in some way, shape, or form uh, with some degree of intimacy or not, wh- where do we stand? I mean, are we okay as pro-lifers? And I, everybody listen to my voice at a pro-lifer, and I accept that. But, but the majority are, because I've looked at Republican polling. The majority of Republicans are pro-life. The majority of Republicans also support the exemptions, the amendments of pro-life. Excuse me, I'm pro-life, but but I'm, I'm for the Hyde Amendment, rape, incest, life of the mother. Um I don't think we should allow women to travel to another state simply because it's convenient that there has to be some, and we've talked about this before, there has to be some degree of personal responsibility. And I think the issue of abortion is a chance to reinvigorate and reinstill some of this personal responsibility that I think is essential to self-governance and the American democracy. Let's go to the phone. Here's Betty in Florence. Hello, Betty. Good morning, Ken and Dave. Um, I would like to know, Ken, uh, and I agree with you half-heartedly here, um, when are they going to make rules for a man? You know, a, when a man starts raping, uh, that's okay? And, and when are they going, instead of putting all this blame on a woman, why can't they do something to a man? And I believe also that the pill... When you go to the emergency room for being raped, I think the pill is fine to give to a woman to make sure she's not pregnant at all. And then you won't have to kill a young man. Thank you, Betty. But, you appreciate that. That's kind of an interesting take. Um, see, I would have a different stance on the men. I mean, if, if a man rapes a woman, there are laws on the book. I mean, you're convicted of rape, you go to jail, you go to prison. I mean, you know, that's kind of the way we deal with rape in America today. Um the question I would have is, it takes two to tango, right? So if a woman gets pregnant in a consensual sexual relationship, she chooses to have an abortion, what say does the man have or not? I mean, I've got a couple of examples in my life, not me personally, but in my circle of friends and families where, you know, um, the daughter or a girlfriend of the son got pregnant. They were not ready to start a family. The daughter um, and her family decided that abortion was the best option the family of the son said, no, we don't want to be a part of that. I mean, our son, had, our, when we all get around a table to discuss this matter, 
and decide, you know, I understand the woman carries the baby. Uh, there's a God in heaven and I ain't him. That's the only way I can defend that. Uh, the, the, the reason the woman carries the baby is that was God's plan. That's the way God wanted it. But, but I don't think you can leave out what a man's desire is in some of those consensual relationships. Now, rape is different. I mean, if a man rapes a woman, I believe the woman should have a right to choose whether or not to carry that baby to term, and the man should be charged with rape. And, and if he's guilty, convicted of rape and sentenced to the you know, highest degree of, that the law allows. But, but when a woman decides to have an abortion in a consensual sexual relationship, what sort of input and opinion should the man be allowed to give in that? Uh, 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Carl in the PD joins us next. Hello, Carl. Hey, what's going on? Hey, Carl. Ken, um, I, I know you're a Christian, and I'm going to throw some Christianity at you. Um, God might surprise you with this, but I'm, I'm staunchly, of course, you know I'm pro-life, and, 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 and not, not just from anti-abortion. However, I'm pro-Bible, and the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, 1023, all things are lawful to me, but all things are not expedient and all things are lawful, but all things don't do me any good. So, I mean, abortion is like the only, only way we have here of where you can kill somebody on purpose. Well, other than self-defense, that's another thing uh, where you could kill somebody without due process. Because it really with, with, with um, self-defense, when you go to court, that's due process if they can prove that you were defending yourself. But you know, people like to put abortion and capital punishment on the same level. Uh, the the, the uh, Constitution says that you, can't, you can be deprived of your life, liberty and property, with due process. So, but the, what's the due process of... Um, grinding up a baby in your womb and sucking it out with the vacuum. I mean, I, I don't know what the due process is there. Uh, yes, you do. There's now, none. There's zero. There is no due process there. It's horrible. It's horrific. It's evil. It's wicked. But but I still think well, we, we have to this, legally though. sort through this. I mean, I, I, and I'm like you. I understand what the Bible says, and I think abortion is a violation of God's law. But but we have a, a system of government that allows people to render decisions that the masses uh, must live under. I, and like I said, I, if, if it's the law, I'm fine with the law because the Bible says it's lawful for you, but don't you do it. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the tourism thing. Okay, then this is where I think you're wrong, and whoever's trying to, to get, get these women back to South Carolina to have those kids are wrong. The, the Republicans in South Carolina have stepped in it again, like I said yesterday. They came up with this weak, heartbeat bill that's going to be stretched out to as long as the, the left wants it to be stretched out to, and nobody's going to be able to do anything about it, whereas other states have very strict abortion laws. Nothing is going to stop me if I want to lay with a prostitute. Nothing's going to stop me from going to Las Vegas and doing that. And I come back to South Carolina, I wish somebody would lock me up for that. And that's the same thing that's going to happen with this abortion. You don't have to leave South Carolina to get an abortion at any point because our the abortions are legal in this state. We are going to be a tourist state for people to come to South Carolina to get abortions. We don't have to worry about people going someplace else. Now, if it, if it ends up being, I, I just, I'm just telling you, 
enforcing that heartbeat thing is going to be a bear because no, you're not going to have like that, that last woman that calls, she will be the one um, taking the heartbeat. And she's going to say, go ahead, baby, we're going to take care of you. It's not going to be a church going Karen with a beehive hairdo saying, you know, uh, that's the soccer mom saying, nah, uh, uh, nope, you can't, um, you, this baby has a heartbeat. You, you can't, get an abortion. They don't even work for Planned Parenthood. It's going to be somebody who is pro-abortion saying, you know, we didn't, we didn't, I, did you hear a heartbeat? I didn't hear a heartbeat. You heard a heartbeat? I didn't hear no heartbeat. Get him. Get in there and get, get in there and get your gown on, open your legs, and we're going to go ahead and do this. And that's, and I blame Republicans for that. Thank you, Carl. Appreciate that. Uh, graphic and interesting call there from Carl. But I mean, that's saying it the way it probably needs to be discussed. I mean, that's a uh, it's it's a gruesome process. I mean, let's be honest. And and those who traffic in the business of abortion, to me, are godless. I mean, I'll say it. You know, I hate to be judgmental, but I think there has to be some degree of setting the record straight. Those who traffic in the, in the industry of abortion are godless. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Couple of callers are there. Let's go to the phone. Bert in Florence. Good morning, Bert. I'd just love to sit down and have a conversation with you. First of all, I've heard this godless thing from you so many times. I, I don't worship your God, but you're so closer to godless than me than I have ever been. I have thousands of gods. How does that make me godless? I, mean, I think that's just the wrong word. But look at history, okay? History, in the Jewish history, it's not a baby until it's 30 days old. Christians, for most of their existence, have said it's not a baby until it's a year old. It's not a person. Uh, you know, the, I think the Bible says the first breath makes it a person or at least a living being. And now, you know, you, science wants to say a conception or the, at least the Christian twisting of science wants to say conception because science says it's not a person until it's fully developed and born and it says it's not a developed person until it's 27 years old because your frontal lobe hasn't developed so we keep calling this you know it's a person thing you know now your discussion on traveling what happens when you decide oh traveling's not enough um she smoked so we should punish that she drank she we should punish that she's not eating the right foods so there should be laws to make sure she has the proper diet. At what point do we look to the man and say, well, he used a condom, and so that prevented what should have happened because that act should have produced a baby. So that condom is can be argued as an abortion. It's, it's avoiding what should have happened. So drawing those lines is going to be more hectic than you're even thinking about because the human being – has sex for pleasure far more than it has sex for reproduction. So you've got to factor that. If we don't intend there to be a baby, sometimes that just happens. So where I draw the line, and I sound like a broken record, but since it keeps coming up, I think I have a right to sound like a broken record. I draw the line at your home, at your private life. Government has zero rights to tell a person what they can do in their private life as long as you are not affecting another person. Now, that gets you right back into the, when is it a person? Well, the law says it's not a person until it's 18. You can't claim it on your taxes. 
and until it's born at least. So how is this preborn? It can't make a contract until it's 18. And as far as I can tell, the Constitution or the Bible doesn't give it any rights until it's an adult. Until then, it is 100% the parent's choice. That's it. Very few, thank you, Bert. Very few people on the planet make me feel like a conformist. Bert is one. I mean, I consider myself as contradictory and as contrarian as anybody in this world until I have a conversation with Bert. And the, the one thing, how many times did I interrupt Bert? I mean, I think Bert respects that. I mean, I think Bert, I mean, obviously he has a very different take than I do. But how many times do we interrupt Bird and say, you can't say this over the airwaves? Uh, that is the beauty, I think, of talk radio. You're allowed to say whatever it is you choose to believe, however provocative, however different it may be. And we're not going to ever stop doing that. I can hear some of you cringing as he says some of these things. Maybe we need to cringe. Uh, do we have time for another call or not? Um, yeah, you got 30 seconds, Steve. Can you throw it in there? Oh, I'll, I'll wait till you guys come back. Okay, okay. sure enough. Steve, we'll get back dumb. It isn't Steve. It's Stephen Wright, right? <laughs> I mean, Stephen Wright, the most recent joke. Stephen Wright, you ready? Mm-hmm. The world's a small place, but I'm glad I don't have to paint it. <laughs> <laughs> Take a break. Back in a minute. That's what we call an embedded feature in radio. Every Thursday morning at the 7 o'clock hour, at about 7.05 or 6, Reggie Armstrong is with us to give us sort of a financial update, and it has been a wild, wild ride here in recent times. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Steve held on through the long break, and we appreciate it. Hey, Steve. Yeah, no problem. Um, I'm 35, independent. I vote Republican. I am America first. I've been that way all my life. Um, but I don't think we should start restricting travel for things. That sets up precedence for a whole sort of issues, like some radical treatment that you can get in Spain or something, and all of a sudden you can't go and you, if it's against the law. Um, now, I can't call myself pro-life because if you were to put me or my family in jeopardy, I'd put you down, no hesitation, and I believe in the death penalty. Um, I can't really consider myself pro-life. Um, but I think we need to determine when a pump of cells baby becomes about available life like um and it's just an organism inside the body and then it starts taking form as a heartbeat brain organ starts developing i think we need to figure that part out and not get too religious about it i believe in god i just don't believe in the religion around the world god gave us everything we need to survive he didn't give us a book. Man gave us a book. And I will listen off the air. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate that. And and, and the, I don't know, it's not a controversy. It's something that we will together collectively, collectively work through. Um, I believe Roe v. Wade was a scapegoat. I mean, I think Roe v. Wade allowed Republicans in conservative states to say, I can't do anything. I mean, I know what I believe, but I can't make legislation. I can't make law because, you know, um, Roe v. Wade is settled um, that dispute and uh, revert that and anything I do is going to be struck down to the courts as in violation of Roe v. Wade. Um, I'll give you an example. There are seven states in America today as a result of Roe v. Wade being overturned that abortions are banned, period. Abortions are banned in Wisconsin, in South Dakota, in Missouri, in Oklahoma, in Arkansas, Kentucky, and Alabama. There are 13 states 
that have the exemption, the Hyde Amendment, rape, incest, life of the mother. There are 16 states that have protection, pretty extensive protection for abortion rights, and there are 14 states that I'd call overlapping. They're a little bit confused. Are they, are they pro-choice or pro-life? Uh, you could honestly talk yourself into believing both about these 14 states. So we've got a um, we've got a mix of you know what the states want to do. Now, once again, the states that had banned abortion and the states with rape, incest, life of the mother, the trigger laws are now. In other words, if Roe v. Wade is ever overturned, here's the trigger, and the trigger turns this state legislation into governing reality. And and previous to that, Roe v. Wade didn't matter what the state governments did. If it was in conflict or violation of Roe v. Wade, it didn't. So so, so real, you know, um, Republicans who profess to be conservative and pro-life could vote any way they wanted to in support of life because the polling said that, whether they believed it or not, that they kind of had a scapegoat. Well, now the scapegoat's gone, and you've got to legislate. I mean, you got to make some real tough decisions. And I think as a country, a state, let's say a state, as South Carolinians. We have to come to grips with what are we comfortable with. And I'm on the record. I don't like this, but I think legislatively I understand it. I said earlier, I'm not sympathetic, but I'm understanding because I believe that life begins at conception. And I think a life um, generated as a result of a rape is just as alive as one not. But I think legislatively we have to be somewhat pragmatic. Uh, You know, is this less virtuous? Is this less pure? Uh, Maybe, maybe not. But I think when you start telling women who have been raped or involved in incestuous relationships that you must have a baby. Now, now the, the counter to that, because I've run into this argument before when I was in politics. Well, how many women is that? It's all of them. Very few women are going to be raped. Very few women are going to be incestuous relationships. But all women have an opinion about another woman who was raped or another woman who, because I've seen this in, I think, the Heritage Foundation. Um, it's less than 2% of all you know, abortions, rape, incest, life of the mother, but every woman has an opinion. 100% of women have an opinion about the 1% of women who were raped uh, in sexual relationships or life is at risk during one of these um, ectopic pregnancies that I read. That's kind of our word of the day. Didn't O'Reilly have a word of the day? Ectopic. Did. Uh, it has to do something with the, um, the, the fertilized egg and the fallopian tube. That's all I know. Uh, they kind of lost me after... I uh, began understanding that it, it's a complication in a pregnancy that puts the the mother's life very much at risk. I mean that that's kind of the um the ectopic word basically means medical complication as far as we're concerned that eventually leads to a woman's life potentially being at risk. So um, as South Carolinians, are we okay with a law that makes an exemption for? I'll ask you, Rev. I mean, let's get you on the record here now. Mm-hmm. You want to talk, Freddie Freeman? You can't shut him up, Mike. <laughs> let's hear him talk about abortion here. You ready? Yeah, um, sure. Or, would you be okay with a South Carolina law that allowed a woman who had been raped to get an abortion? I didn't yeah, ask you yeah. if you like it or not. Right. I mean, obviously, of we, don't, we wish I don't abortion like never happened. Right. I mean, we wish rape never happened. We wish incest never happened. We wish every pregnancy that ever went down in any medical facility in America went down as planned, but some don't. Uh, There are rare exceptions. At times, uh, you know, a woman is raped. Their incest is real. I mean, you know, live of the mother, there there are complications. We have a medical word, cardiac topic. I mean, it happens from time to time. So would you be uh, okay as a male, a South Carolinian, a conservative voter, with a delegation or a legislative body deciding that we were going to make an exemption for rape. Uh, it hurts my heart, of course, but I think that is 
that is the human and and hate to say it political reality that yes that's that's right incest yes life of the mother yes okay here, now, now here you get into the yeah, gray now, now. <laughs> now traveling your, to another state <laughs> would you would you be supportive or not of abortion legislation that prohibited a woman from traveling to let's say new york to have an abortion see that that's the since you've brought that up this morning i need to think about that a little because i'm thinking at it from the the concept of of we've been for states rights and states setting these rules so i I think about that one a little bit so so if you're a south carolinian and you answer to the laws of which the south carolina general assembly passes should you be allowed to go to New York in the middle of the night, stay at a hotel, get an abortion, come back home, and live back underneath the law? I mean, I, that, that's where we get a little bit. Right. I, I don't but because, say because you can obviously travel for medical procedures sure. now. I mean, if there's a great heart doctor you'd at the Mayo Clinic, right. I mean, wouldn't you want to go to Minnesota yeah. to get your um, heart work done? If there's a world-renowned um, knee specialist at the Hospital for Special Surgeries, which is the number one orthopedic hospital in America, that's in New York. I mean, wouldn't you want to be allowed to do that? So should you be allowed to go to a state more friendly to abortion, to have an abortion, whether you rape, incest, lie of the mother or not, uh, an abortion of convenience. I mean, that, that these are things that the, the General Assembly is going to have to grapple with. And um, I, I don't know how you monitor and police this, but a lot of laws are hard to monitor and police. See, I can hear the General Assembly now saying, well, how in the world are we going to monitor and police that? And that would be my crutch, mm-hmm. so to speak. But there are a lot of laws we pass that are hard to monitor and police. I mean, there, nearly every law depends on uh, i don't know a, a willingness for the constituency to say yeah i'll obey that law or no i'm not well, obeying and really that you, law you have to be caught yeah sure i mean the speed limit i mean how, how many people who speed are not caught what percentage right. of speedsters or speeders are, are, are not caught so so to say that you know there's no need in putting that law in the books because it's going to be real difficult to enforce um go down the interstate and see how many cars are running 85 miles an hour how many get stopped i mean some do and it's kind of the potluck, you know, I don't want to go through Kershaw, Kershaw County running 85 because you'll get a ticket. I mean, you know, we know the, the hot spots of enforcement there. I just think that these are the issues that we've got to struggle with. And I think we should struggle with, with these issues because, once again, Roe v. Wade is no longer the guiding light. Roe v. Wade is no longer the North Star on abortion. And, and I think for many, many, many years, all of my life, I mean, as long as I've been political, I'm sure, I mean, it's been... Um, you know, we can't do this because of that. Well, now that is gone. So you can do some of this. What are we as, as a state willing to allow to become law? And, and I think when Philip said yesterday that I believe, I, mean, I quote him exactly, I believe life begins at conception, but, but I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to offend every female voter out there. Um, you got to stay in the majority. Well, that's disobedient to God, is it? You know, I've had that from very religious people, fundamentally uh, fundamental religious will say, um, well, I mean, you should honor God. You should, how can I honor God if I'm not in office? I mean, if, if I, you know, if, if you want Democrats, so let me ask you this. Do you think the Democrats will only make exemptions for life of rape, incest, life of the mother? I mean, they've let it be known where they stand. I mean, they're, I mean, they're what, very, what position will end up with uh, creating less abortion? And allowing less abortion. Yeah. Which position? Well, I mean, that, but isn't that, that's kind of a, a matter of the heart. I mean, I, you know, that, that's right. what I believe. But isn't that the goal? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's to create less abortions, correct. Um, but, but once again, that, and, and you don't have to do this, and I don't have to do this, but you've got to figure out a law that creates less abortions and allows you to win elections. 
I mean, that's the cold, hard truth of politics. We can be purists as pundits. We can be purists as political observers. We can be purists as someone who um, watches Fox News or CNN every night. Some of those folks who put their name on a ballot that chair a committee or a, uh, a ranking member of a committee, but they've got to they've got to kind of operate in that bubble. And I think we've got to appreciate and respect the job they have to do. Um, we know we're going to get less abortions if Republicans are in charge. But what is too far for Republicans to be in charge? And I would hate to be a Republican running for office in any state saying to the uh, so I'm talking to 100 women. You know, I'm talking to pol- 100 politically active women, females. And I'm sitting there and someone asked me about abortion and they asked me about the Hyde Amendment. And I say life begins at conception and there's no way I think a woman, and because of that life, because of that belief that life begins at conception, I think a woman who's raped should be forced to have the baby. I think a woman who's an incestuous, unfor- uh, a, um, a forced, uh, non-consensual relationship of incest should be made. Uh, there's no way. There's no way you win that room of females. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Hey, Larry. Good morning. Um, boy, I know it's probably been so long that everybody forgets, but I just want to say that when Bert gets on the air, sometimes I think I'm crazy. And then when you put Bert on the air, I realize that I look like Ward Cleaver. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't know what comic book version of the Bible that fellow's been reading, but I love when people who don't know anything about something, and I know he runs his own cult, and he thinks he knows a lot about the Bible, but um, in, in terms of they read that book and they manage an assertion like, well, the Bible says this, and it's like something that anybody who, who has read the Bible casually goes, eh, don't say that. Uh, the Bible does not say, you know, that you're not a person until you're a man. That's just nuts because then what are, when do women become a person? So that's just silly. Um, there's so many evidences in the Bible where John the Baptist leaps in the womb of his mother when the pregnant Mary comes by that, that he in the womb was aware of another life inside another body, both developing uh, scientifically. But the other thing that he asserted is that science says that a baby's not alive until it takes its first breath. And we know, I mean, we've seen a million scientific surveys that come out, and with almost 100% certainty, scientists who are biologists say that the life process, life, begins at conception. So I don't know what science he's talking about unless he's got a buddy named Science that he drinks beers with on the weekends. But science doesn't say that. And also... Science is not, I didn't elect science, and I don't vote for science. Uh, I vote my conscience. So science doesn't have to have a bearing on that all the time, uh, number one. Uh, but, you know, the, the thing about us deciding how far is too far, I think you're right. You know, we live in a secular society that, that is, is bolstered on a lot of religious uh, framework. So it does sometimes spark against each other. And I think that's fine, and the way I think about it is it's like it's a tug-of-war, right? And that person that says no abortion under any circumstance, well, they are on my team. I mean, on the tug-of-war team, I probably have wrapped the rope around their waist and put them back at the anchor, right? But I need them pulling with me. But we are never probably going to pull the whole rope all the way back. But we need to pull it far enough that we we can win the tug-of-war. And when your when your country is headed in the right the wrong direction rather the wrong direction, all I'm looking for is any move in the right direction. I'll take it in whatever way it comes. 
So it doesn't have to be perfect for me. I'm a pretty fundamental religious voter, but I don't have to have perfection at the first pass of this thing. We're going from, hey, you can't say anything about an abortion to, hey, we can restrict and limit abortion. So if we don't get it all in the first bite, that's okay. Or if we don't get as far as I wish that I would have gone, that's okay. I'm still going to pull the rope with folks that are like-minded. I just want to get this thing moving in the right direction. So we don't have to solve it all. But I will say this, and I'll give this give your time back to you. The life of the mother is almost a dead argument at this point because there are very few pregnancies that end with the life of the mother. Most of the time, when the pregnancy starts to threaten the life of the mother, the baby is viable outside of the womb. Most of those babies are delivered these days, and the mother and the baby survive. So it's a great emotional argument, but it really doesn't happen that often. So really what you're going to come down to is rape and incest. That's really what it's going to come down to. And I'm going to be honest with you, even though I believe that those children have a right to a future that you and I can't foresee, we think we can, but we can't foresee their future. And we say, well, they're going to have horrible lives, their moms didn't want them, whatever. But our culture is going to change. What if we lived in a culture that just surrounded those kind of women and loved them and supported them and helped them financially, emotionally, psychologically, and they knew that they were not going to be alone and that in nine months someone was going to be knocking at their door to say, I will take that baby if you don't want it. Would it change how desperately we want to abort the babies of rape and incest victims? I think it would. So, But I don't mind leaving that door open. The culture can solve that problem. We, the, the, the legislature doesn't have to. So we can leave that door open. It's such a small amount of people to begin with that I think anybody can live with it. But I think that it could help change our culture if we would say we have got to you know, rally to support these women that find themselves in that situation through zero fault of their own. Well, explain. But the last thing I want to say is the government does have a right to re- legislate what you do in your home. You can't kill somebody in your home. You can't rape somebody in your home. You can't lie and steal money from somebody in your home. So this idea that you've got some unlimited right to privacy, that's bunk. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, yeah, that's a lot of a lot of commentary <laughs> there, but, but very um, sincere and interesting comments from a good caller, um, Larry, on the show. Uh, let's take a break. We'll be back. We're behind a bit. Want to catch up? We'll be back. In just a few moments. One of the more interesting. One of one of one of one of one of what? I mean, I, I get this way. I mean, I get so. I mean, I'm ready to go. You got words. Uh, yeah, in I your got, brain trying to get out of your. And mouth. I don't have but one mouth, and I got like just far more mental horsepower than most do. Oh, okay. And uh, I need about three miles to get all these things out at one really? time. But uh, in seriousness, <laughs> we're about to find out how many Republicans have been getting lip service to pro life. I mean, there's some. I don't know how many, but we're going to find out in the next year, maybe two, how many Republicans have just said what they had to say because mm. the Republican brand, many, the Republican they'll have to base. go on record now. Yeah, right? yeah they got to go on the record and make votes. Now, once again, seven states have banned, as a result of Roe v. Wade being overturned, uh, abortions. Wisconsin, South Dakota, Missouri, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Kentucky, Alabama, 13 states have made exceptions for rape, incest, life of the mother. That would be South Carolina. 16 states uh, would be blue states have protection for abortion rights 
in what you and I would consider fairly extreme fashion, and then 14 are overlapping in question. Some of these are litigated. Some of these were dependent upon Roe v. Wade. Now they're in some other state of litigation. So it's complicated in America today. And I think Larry made a very valid point by, you know, we're in a tug of war and we're pulling the rope and some are going to pull harder than others. Some accept pragmatism easier than others. Some accept political reality a little easier. We know exactly where Dale is. I mean, you said during the break, there is no question. I mean, Dale has gone on Saturdays to march in, in rallies, and Dale is, um, I mean, he's an activist in the pro-life movement. But I think it's interesting when Dale said, but I accept the political reality. It doesn't mean I like it, but I accept the fact that we have governance, and then with that governance comes two parties, and with that two party comes some degree of moderation, compromise. And and, and I understand as a, as a pro-life activist and, and really fundamentalist, believing that life begins conception and all life should be protected. I understand that Republicans have to win elections if we're going to pull the rope a little bit further, to use Larry analogy, uh, in our favor. So that's kind of where we are, and that's the balancing act that we are uh, participating in as we speak. Let's go to the phone. Here's Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Uh, good morning. It's a hot show. I tell you, they, uh, these are really hot topics you're dealing with this morning. But uh, that... There's a intensity to the to some of these arguments that outweighs the percentages. There's just there's volume, and then there's intensity that determines the effect of any uh, issue be- before the public. And uh, I think they uh, you get the intensity with the the loss of life in a Uvalde type situation which is just horrible, and everything goes wrong that can go wrong. I mean, it's just Murphy's Law. But I think we're engaged right now in a situation like it was a cliche when I was going to school, which is ancient history, um, that they taught civics, and they said, why did the, uh, why did the uh, Dark Ages happen? And they said, well, the Roman Empire fell, and uh, then... Uh, all the smart people got in towers and started calculating how many angels could dance on the head of a pen. And that became, that preoccupied people for hundreds of years. Well, I think we're kind of getting into that. How many angels can dance on the head of a pen? And do you mean simultaneously or sequentially? That's uh that's the question. But uh, these, these people every day, 250, 270, I'm not sure exactly how many uh, die from uh, fentanyl overdoses in this country. And uh, that's every day. And and we can't seem to regulate that. And we're going to regulate whether a woman travels to uh, Washington, D.C. or New York or wherever to get an abortion, I mean, that that is just, uh, it's not practical, it's not reasonable. I mean, you can't vote for on an election uh, in, uh, in the U.S., but you can go to Great Britain and vote on an election. I mean, that's, uh, how, how are you going to stop that sort of thing? And uh, why would you even attempt it? Because it's kind of like... Uh, it's a meaningless action. It's like Sisyphus rolling the stone up to the top of the hill just to have it roll back down the other side every day. It's a, it's a no-win situation. 
Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. You know, there's kind of an interesting element to this debate we've not discussed yet. Dave Portnoy, you know him, he's kind of one of these internet sensations, uh, makes a big splash. He knows how to market and brand and, and all these other sorts of things. Many people in the Republican Party believe the Portnoy's, uh, the Teals, the, the Musk of the world are kind of the future of the conservative movement. There's a libertarian leaning about this, um, but they're not conservatives. Uh, so so they, it's hard to argue they're the future of the conservative movement when they're not conservatives, but they do send or they do tend to be um, bothered deeply by liberal policies. And by that, I mean wokeism and political correctness. And um, they don't say much about globalism. Teal does. Portnoy and some of these others don't. But when I read, uh, there's an interesting article in the National Review about Dave Portnoy um, posting something on Twitter about when Roe v. Wade was overturned. Because once again, people have referred to him and some of these other uh, newfangled internet sensations as the, uh, the future of conservatism because they relate to young people. I mean, it's kind of a um, Portnoy has a brand that all three of my kids are familiar with. They find what he says to be interesting. And, and to some degree, guys, politics is entertainment. I mean, it really is. Who is entertaining or not? Um, Trump's been entertaining. I mean, it, it, let's be honest. Um, young people like Trump because they, they kind of like to be entertained. And, and there's no telling. I mean, I've heard but both my boys, my daughter not so much, but both my boys have said, hey, we watch his press conferences because there's no telling what this man may say. They find that interesting. But here's, and I don't think we can under, or overstate this. When you look at what Portnoy or Musk or somebody else who appears to be more in line with what we stand for as it relates to some of the political correctness and wokeness and higher education and, and education in general. But but the, the one thing we've got to understand, guys, and, and gals, I mean, this is uh, both men and women need to understand that babies are derived from sex. And sex requires a certain level of commitment. And I guess the sexual revolution, you know, we talk about Woodstock and, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We're doing a good bit of music tomorrow. Um they're, they're these people who are professing to be the future of, of I don't want to say the conservative movement, but but we, we welcome and embrace their um, interest in the Republican Party. And, you know, Musk said, I'm voting Republican. Well, I mean, I don't know where Elon Musk stands on abortion. I've never heard him say much. Uh, but the majority of those kinds of people here, I'm being very uh, stereotyping someone. Um, but, but the majority of those people just don't have a lot to say about what you do with the privacy of your own home and your medical health decisions. But 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 I, I just think that the, the the feelings we have about commitment-free sex of both men and women, um, it has to be a part of the debate. Yeah, I mean, it, it does. It, I mean, you know, I've got a daughter, and it, 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 it drives me crazy. To know there are, I mean, I'm being candid. It drives me crazy to know there are 18, 19 year old boys out there who have, you know, something called testosterone um, that, that doesn't couple with commitment. I mean, I know that. I'm not made. I wish the world were made of, you know, uh, abstinence and, you know, and, um, and, and, you know, once you have sex, you make a commitment one to another. And these are uncomfortable things. But we talk about all these in political theories and Roe v. Wade. That there, there's a necessary debate to be had about how much commitment-free sex has contributed to how many abortions we've ended up having. Uh, if people took sexual relationships uh, more seriously, 
and the commitment required of, for, for having sex with someone at 16 or 18 or 28 or 38 or 40, for that matter, um, I think we see a decline in abortions. But we've been, we, we basically um, normalized commitment-free sex. And, and that has to be a part of the debate. Um, if you don't make a commitment in a sexual relationship, what sort of commitment will you make to the decision of whether to abort that baby or not? I mean, that's something we're not talking much about. And I'm not blaming Portnoy, and I'm not blaming Musk, but, but these folks who are uh, important figures in this kind of revolutionary political period, uh, a lot of their opinions on abortion is based on, I, I would argue, their commitment to non-committed sex, their, their, their normalization of non-committed sexual relationships. I sound like a preacher now. I'm certainly not <laughs> lecturing to anyone because I can't. Well, anyway, I'll leave that alone. But, Let's but, go to the phone. But, but that's, that's funny because that is not discussed at all. You never hear but, that. But it should be. I mean, I think it should be. I, I think, you know, the, the, I mean, how are babies born? A man and a woman have sex. A girl and a boy have sex. And out of that sexual relationship comes an, an impregnation. And out of that comes, you know, a choice of whether to have the baby or not. So, so I think when you don't have much of a commitment, when you have sex, it's hard to convince me there's going to be that sort of commitment made when you decide what to do or not to do in protecting or preserving that human life. And I think we've normalized commitment-free sex to a point that allows people to believe, well, that abortion is not a big deal. What a big deal. What a big deal. We slept together. She's drinking. I'm drinking. You know, we were at a race or a concert or a ball game, whatever. Uh, and, and listen, guys. That's the real world. You know it. I know it. And those of you who have kids in that age, you know you worry about that. I mean, you, you, I, t- I told both my boys and I've told my daughter, um, you're going to make some good decisions and some bad decisions. There's one decision you can make that will impact you forever. Because that one decision could lead to an event that, that may, it forces your hand and you're going. So, yeah, I mean, you know, running the yellow light or not making an A or not, studying an extra hour or not, eating too much or not. All of those are, are, are basically bump, uh, what speed bumps of the road of wherever it is we're headed. But when you take sex as casually and non-committed as, as you know, we've normalized in American culture and society, I, 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 we better be careful with that. We better be careful. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I think uh, Philip Lowe was with us yesterday. I think Mike Rickenbach and Jay Jordan will be here in the eight o'clock hour this morning. Um, we shall see in cool. due time. I think that's an interesting point in discussion you brought up, and as it relates to uh, culture and how we got where we are, and I guess where we're going. Um, because normally it's just you know when you, when you hear, and I guess it's from the the pro-life side you hear a lot of well it's just abstinence you know just don't have casual yeah. sex as nancy reagan said about drugs just say no right okay that worked real well didn't it and yeah, just say no you addict um you've been addicted to drugs or alcohol for 20 years. just say no damn it i mean it's as easy as that right mm-hmm. so so i do believe this to, to your point i think the one thing we've not talked about is the and i think i think women I, i'm gonna speak to you for a second i think we men have done a good job at devaluing the price of your intimacy. I mean, I, I, I don't mean that to be accusatory, but I think casual sex has become rare. We had a, we had two words called shotgun wedding. I mean, when a when when sex resulted in a pregnancy, it ended up normally in a shotgun wedding. The family of the of the the male almost demanded 
I mean, the family of the bride, that's why it's called a shot. If you don't marry my daughter, here I come with a shotgun. Uh, and that terminology is outdated. Um, we don't use that any longer. And I think the reason is, um, and I guess the sexual revolution, I think of Woodstock and I think of the music and songs and some of the movies, entertainment, culture, as you said a second ago. Um, and look, I'm as guilty of this as anybody. I mean, I'm certainly not, you know, standing here with a Bible in my hand, you know, pounding people in the head. But rest assured that, that I am a, uh, a part of modern society as much as anyone. Um, but I do believe that when sex resulted in pregnancy, that pregnancy was expected, society kind of expected um, an A and then a B and then a C and then a D. And if the A and B um, didn't lead to C, you know, here came the girl's dad. And that's the old term about shotgun wedding. I mean, we called that a shotgun wedding. And I do believe that men over the years have, um, I don't want to say misled or tricked or uh, manipulated, but I do think that women um, don't take as seriously across the board. I'm not talking about you, listener female, or you female listener, but uh, but on average, um, your intimacy is incredibly valuable. I guess this is the conversation I have with my daughter, and you don't have a, a daughter. I told Rev during the break, you got two boys. Mm-hmm. I got two boys too. I got a girl. And, and I do look at that incredibly different because mm-hmm. I don't know what 18-year-old girls are thinking. I mean, I'm convinced they're smarter than we are, but but I don't know what they're thinking. I know exactly what 18, 19, 20-year-old boys are thinking. I mean, I am as sure of that as I'm sitting behind this microphone, and and second at that age probably ain't close. <laughs> I like to say the most powerful force on earth. Yeah, you better believe it. Um, and and men are visually stimulated. Uh, we're stupid. I mean, there are a lot of contributing forces to to why I believe that. But but yeah, I mean, I think as we talk about abortion and how many we've had and how many we don't have and what the percentages are, um, the lack of intimacy in sexual relationships is a major contributor because if you lack that intimacy in that sexual relationship, what makes you believe that person's going to take more seriously that decision about whether to have an abortion or not? Let's go to the phone. Charles in Florence. Good morning, Charles. Morning, guys. Uh, just a couple quick points. Um, and, Ken, you're, you're right, as usual, well, 99.9% of the time. But uh, I think part of it is in the older days, I'm the same age as you, um, I think the parents, when a girl got pregnant in the day, they expected that the man and or the boy and the girl would have to love each other to go that far. And so I think that's why the shotgun wedding is like, well, and we're to use that term loosely, but you um, had to get married because, well, they to do that, they had to love each other. You know, and obviously nowadays that really does not enter into it as much as at least the parents thought back then. And the second thing is, you know, I grew up with devout Catholics, and my dad was extremely pro, pro-life. But contraception was talked about, and abstinence was talked about heavily back then. And you never hear that talked about. And I don't even hear it talked about by conservative uh, you know, Christian uh, preachers on TV. They, they just kind of, I guess, gave up on that part of it. And then the part that the point zero one percent you're wrong, Ken, is I hate to say it is uh, Kobe and Larry Bird, but we'll save that again. All right, thanks, guys. <laughs> Thank you, appreciate that. I actually got an argument, well, not an argument, a, a text about you were part of that with Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, and right. I think the guy kind of just gave up and said, "Okay, Larry's better." Uh, you racist, <laughs> you. No, nah, I'm kidding. He didn't say. He didn't say that. Hey, we'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of seconds. 
843-661-0937 is our number Thursday morning. Want to do a programming note real quick. Um, we asked our delegation that comes in on some of the delegation that comes in on, on Friday morning to reschedule. Um, Philip Lowe kind of cowboyed it. I mean, each, you know, he came a day early and, uh, now we got Jay Jordan and Mike Rickenbaugh <laughs> with us. He had plans already today, yeah, so, so, so he what came was, in Wednesday. What was once a trio is now only a duo, so the Bee Gees have turned into the Judge, I guess, is the way. <laughs> the Justice. Wait a minute now. <laughs> we're, we're gonna need to, we'll need some time to confer and come back to you with a, a agreement. Okay. At least give us Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine that. Imagine Jordan yeah. wants to form a I'm committee. Paul Simon. He wants to, he wants to form a committee and, and, have, and have a vote. There and you I'm go, Garfunkel. Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, okay, yeah. fair enough, fair enough. Um, real quick, tomorrow... Um, in the seven to 10 time period, six to seven, it, it'll kind of be us waking up while you're waking up, but at seven, we're going to do a, a contest and here's what we're doing. You ready? Can we announce this now? Sure. We've, um, we've got, uh, the blessing of Pepsi of Florence to give away six gift certificates to local Pepsi restaurants, restaurants that serve, uh, Pepsi color, $50 gift cards, um, six packs of Pepsi products, some t-shirts. Uh, but here's the way we're doing it. It's got stages. You ready? We'll, we'll take about 18 calls, and we'll, we'll play 18 songs. You identify the song and answer a trivia question. That's how you qualify. You identify the song, you answer the trivia question, and you become a qualifier. We'd like to have about 18 people in total qualify. In the 930 time frame, we'll give away the six $50 gift cards. And now the 18 will have already won a six-pack of Pepsi product, and it takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirt. Yep. So tomorrow it'll be fun with music and and trivia question, um, uh, what do we call it? Fun and frolicking. Wake up, Carolina, on Friday before July fourth. <laughs> name's good as any. And then next week we're out of here. We're not on the air live. It'll be the best we could do of Wake Up Carolina Monday through Friday. Um, enjoy your Fourth of July. Now we've made an effort, and I think we did fairly well, Rev, at um, centering the music around America. I would say patriotism, but I don't know that some of these songs are patriotic, but they right. do. Um, speak of, of America and Americana. Appropriate going into Independence Day weekend. There so. you go. So um, for you folks who love to win contests, be ready. Tomorrow morning, beginning at 7, we're going to try to take 18 qualifiers. And for you folks in Pamplico, if there's six winners and 18 qualifiers, that means you got a one in three chance of winning um, a pretty cool $50 gift card as we move forward. And <laughs> we are scheduled to have our a veteran. We're going to honor sure, a veteran. Honor a vet will be in the 7.30 time frame, 7.30, I want to thank our two um, uh, legislators for uh, moving their very busy and important schedules around to accommodate this feeble attempt to Radio Brigance. So um, we have the Judds with us. I'm sorry, we have Simon and Garfunkel with us. <laughs> what about uh, maybe Brooks and Dunn? Yeah, Brooks and Dunn. I'm Kick Brooks. I'm Kick Brooks, there you go. Kick Brooks I call it. You, you would take the lead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Ronnie Dunn's a good man now. Come on, I like Ronnie Dunn. Uh, I, I want to cool start here now because yeah, I, right. I can't think, and I mean this sincerely, I can't think of two more appropriate people to pose this, not a question, but this commentary and listen to your follow-up. So for all of my adult life, Roe v. Wade has settled the issue on abortion. It's federal. It's a federal ruling that led to, I don't know, um, handy uh, tying the hands of, of general assemblies all over the country, state legislatures all over the country. Um, it's no longer law of the land overturned on Friday morning. Um, Jay and Mike, I thought of a lady named Alexa Newman. Uh, Alexa helped me when I ran for lieutenant governor. Um, governor Beasley introduced me to Alexa. And I don't know how many women Alexa has um, counseled and you know there's an option it doesn't have to be abortion or have the baby there's adoption agencies there are there, there's a ways for there, there, there there's support elements that will love on you and help you understand you know there are multiple choices to make um 
there are seven states that when Roe v. Wade was overturned, uh, became states that banned abortions. Wisconsin, South Dakota, Missouri, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Kentucky, Alabama. There are 13 states, uh, rape, incest, life of the mother. There are 16 states that have pretty extensive abortion rights. And there are 14 states that I would call overlap in question. Uh, they're, they're being litigated. There's some confusion there. Um, the two of you have made faith a big part of your public life, and I respect that. I admire that because that's kind of the, the anchor of which you base your fundamental beliefs on. Um, but you've got to legislate. I mean, we've got a job to do. And it's not, we're not running a church. We're not teaching the Bible. Um, I understand that both of you have based your life on on that belief in God, that belief in the gospel. But but you're a member of a delegation and a, and a, and a, a legislative body that has to come up with legislation that can not only um, pass the test of litigation, but can also keep Republicans in majority so we can continue to be in charge of making the laws. That's not a question, but a commentary. Mike, I'll start with you, if you don't mind. Um, your comments on my commentary are? That you talk a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I got four hours here today, my man. <laughs> no, it's, it's what a relevant time in our country right now. It's, a, it's funny. I was talking to a, a pastor I know well. It was in the 80s. I'm going to date myself here because there was a guy who had been nominated for a Supreme Court justice named Robert Bork. And I'm older than most of you, but Robert Bork was up and he was a very pro-life judge from the standpoint of how he was going to approach the Supreme Court. And I remember praying, and my family did, that like Judge Bork would have been nominated thinking that this would be the linchpin to overturn Roe versus Wade. That was in the 80s. Now we're in 2022, and it finally happened. And then the, the first thing this has taught me from a standpoint of faith is the need for patience. It doesn't turn overnight. And even something that is, as, in my opinion, as clearly as the, the sanctihood of, sancti- sanctification of, of life, it begins at conception that we would take this long to get to this point while we do need to legislate and we do need to decide on, on what is law and what's an uphold, upholdable law. Ultimately, I believe if we're put in office and we're going to follow our faith and ask God to give us the wisdom and the discernment. I mean, the prayer that was in Solomon's heart, help me lead God with you as my basis. And if we base our decisions on biblical principles, that's not a violation of our duties. I think that's what drives our duties. Cause if we, if a ship doesn't have a compass, Ken doesn't know where it's going. And I think as legislators, we need a compass to decide how we're going to de- legislate. Is it our own ambition? <laughs> is it special interest groups? Is it lobbyists? Is it going to be faith? What is going to lead our decision-making? Cause there's a lot of decisions that aren't black and white. There's a lot of gray in there and a, a, that moral compass is going to be necessary. And I think Jan is a man of faith as well. If we believe that life begins at conception, then that compass has to be a biblical approach of this is life and we have to vote to protect life. Jake? You know, as as Mike said, as myself, a person of faith, I think people that, that don't go that route in life don't understand to the degree, um, and I've said this before, um, when when you <clears throat> invite the Lord into your heart and you, you become a person of faith, you become a, a, a Christian, uh, it infects every aspect of your life in theory, uh, at least it should. And so it's not something as I, as I go to uh, my office or I go to the state house or I go, you know, anywhere in town that it should, I should check my faith at the door. Uh, that's how Christians get criticized for being hypocritical. Uh, but 
the other side of that coin is when I when I I can't check my faith in Columbia either. So it would be wrong of me to when I go out and talk to people and say I want you to vote for me, um, not for them not to have a clear understanding that my faith dictates who I am and, and the decisions I make. And this is this is probably no better example of how you can't disconnect your faith from an issue like this. This is an issue. Um, when I got to Columbia um, several years ago now, um, we were working within the constraints of Roe, just as bodies had been before us. And we, over a period of many, many years, you know, if you go back and look at the history, it's really an interesting history. You saw what the court did, but what you didn't often see was what happened as a result of that moving forward. Um, conservative leaders, church leaders came together and they, while they wanted and had this, you know, end in, you know, end goal in sight, which would be the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which is, we just saw, obviously, um, we, we worked within the confines of the court structure, didn't necessarily like it at all, but we did what we could. And over time through, at least in my time, there were many, many bills before that, but we saw the pain capable um, bill that shrunk the time period of abortion. We saw other pieces of legislation that clarified and hopefully saved lives. And then, of course, um, what has gotten a lot of attention in the last couple of years, the heartbeat bill, which is now in effect in South Carolina, thankfully. So we're we're a state, while we didn't go all the way uh, as far as probably we could have looking back at it, the benefit of hindsight, uh, we now have the heartbeat bill in effect. And it, it's, it basically says when that heartbeat is detected, which is four to six weeks, depending on the situation, um, abortion is is not a viable opportunity in south carolina um now and and what we've done in in the house at least is let's figure out what the next step is now that we've been given new instructions or new parameters from the supreme court in washington now we have to figure out what where we go next and so we formed a a committee (laughs) uh everybody laughs at that but the reason for that is we want to get it right legally and there's a little bit of anytime the supreme court takes a new step and gives us new parameters we have to make sure that what we do next is within those parameters and we because lawsuits will come and we want to get it right and we don't want to waste taxpayer money on lawsuits and so we're going to form a committee we're going to the speaker and the governor have said we're going to bring the legislature back into session in the not too distant future take the findings of what we've learned and make a uh, new law in South Carolina that comes within the confines of what the Supreme Court has told us is legal. But Mike, there is a personal and political conflict. I mean, when you agree to be a public service, you stepped into the world of the imperfect. Um, I would argue that once you accept, uh, you know, uh, Christianity is your faith of choice, your life gets more complicated. I mean, it really does. There's always perpetual conflict out there. You know, the, the Bible says this, but the world says that. And somewhere in the middle is where politics kind of enters the equation. Uh, when I look at the states that have um, exempted rape, incest, life of the mother, I'm not arguing. Uh, I'm a fellow Christian. I'm not arguing that the um, the life generated as a result of a rape is any less a life, an incestuous relationship is any less of a life. But there is a political reality that that you know the majority of women, female voters, and Republicans have issues with female voters believe that a woman who has been raped should not be made to have that baby. I mean, that's the world we live in. We, we can't escape the world we live in. How does someone who makes their faith such a large part of their life balance that political reality? Yeah, boy, that's a, a great question and, and, a, and a tough question because I think ultimately it goes back to, and I, I know it's a very biblical approach, but it's the Garden of Eden. When we fell, when sin entered this world, it took a perfect paradise 
and it made it a very complicated, dirty reality. And it's a reality we all live in. So when we talk about rape and incest in the life of the mother, you know, a 14 year old getting raped by your uncle. I mean, you talk of some of the worst cases ever. In good conscience, the question is asked, how do you tell that young 14 year old, you're gonna carry that baby to term and deliver that baby and have a reminder that your uncle raped you and now you have to give birth. And whether you give that baby up for adoption or not, that is going to stick with you. But I'd argue, argue that terminating the life of that baby sticks with you as much, if not more. So there's not a win in that situation. The problem was that sin entered, her uncle raped her, she's then pregnant. There's no reality or no solution that says, ah, oh, this makes it better. It's really a, 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 of the decisions, which is the least horrible decision. And unfortunately, when, when sin is at play, there's not going to be a win to get us out of that. That's why God's grace and his redemption and his mercy is so important because you don't come out of a cut with no scar. Now it heals, but there's going to be a scar. Same situation right here. There's going to be an impact. Neither is going to make this go away, but that's the reality of sin. Sin has consequences. And Jay, you guys are forced to deal with that in a political reality. And we will. You know, this will go through the process and the process will work. If I had a guess, I would guess that the exceptions would be part of the law at the end of the day. And I'm basing that on prior past pro-life legislation. Um, but there, it's a windy road um, on, on every piece of legislation, just about. It'll go through the committee process. There'll be amendments. Um, I can remember when we did the heartbeat, the, the, the exceptions. It wasn't, there weren't exceptions in the bill. They were added at the committee. I can remember that process very distinctly. From a practical standpoint, we'll deal with the issue. Now, I would also caution, this is where conservatives, if we're not careful, we end up fighting with each other. You know, these exceptions are important, and we'll deal with them, and we'll, we'll debate them, and we'll ultimately make a determination that will hopefully become law. Uh, but at the end of the day, these exceptions contain a, a incredibly minuscule percentage of the overall number of abortions. And if we're not careful, this is just a... a quick moment of caution, we'll end up fighting amongst ourselves and be damaged by the issue itself. And then Democrats are in charge, and we know where we're headed as it relates to abortion, but the Democrats get in charge. Let's take a break. I want to come back and talk vetoes and Ellen Weaver. Uh, that was a big win for reform in education. I want to get to legislature's opinion, to legislators' opinion on that and kind of the veto process we're working through as we speak. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. The uh, two members of the General Assembly of uh, we have a local. How many people are in the delegation? I mean, one of you guys give me the answer. How many nine people total. are in? Nine total. And then we have uh, five five resident county yeah. resident members. And there's a there's a um, you've got a story about the uh, the chairmanship of the local delegation. No, that was you, so, so. Most people don't know uh, how we pick our seats in the house. Okay, um, this was my second term, I guess. And it became, it was, you know, everybody's getting sworn back in for a new term. We go up there and it's, you know, picking our seats. Well, we do it by lottery. So they pull your county and that's when you get to go pick your seats. And I've, I've sat with Philip Lowe. And of course we have uh, Roger Kirby and Terry Alexander, the other two members who are Democrats. And they sit together from other, from the county as well. Well, it's getting kind of late in the process and Florence has not been called yet. And we start looking around like, well, where are we going to sit? Uh, so at this point, Philip and Terry start getting into a discussion. I use that term loosely there, a discussion about who the senior member of the delegation was. You know, A comes before L, but I, you know, I'm a Republican in the majority party. You know, we're, they're going back and forth pretty heated about this. 
and it's getting late. We're getting down to the nitty gritty. There's only two seats left together, so somebody's going to have to break up of the four of us. Well, at this point, they're still arguing. Florence is called, and they don't even realize it. They're they're nose to nose over here, uh, spirited discussion. Jay Lucas looks up, and and by the way, I should say there there was an argument about who the senior member was. There was no argument about who the junior member was. That was me. <laughs> and he, so you took your seat. He looks up and he says, "Representative Jordan." And so I called my number and sat down, and they looked up, and the fight was over, and they didn't even realize it. So. <laughs> That's a pretty good story. Yeah. Um, and I would say egos tend to be egos, but politicians <laughs> tend to be politicians. I want, I want to ask you a question, uh, and I want you to kind of educate our audience a little bit. Ellen Weaver wins the superintendent of education. Yeah, I'll start with you. You've been there a good while. Um, Weaver wins the superintendent of education because she's a reform candidate. We're in kind of a reform, disruptive time in American uh, politics across the country. It's not just South Carolina. I mean, America's embracing, for whatever reason, um, disruptive, reforming sorts of, of candidates. So Weaver wins, superintendent of education. We wake up the next morning, believe that here comes school choice. Here comes competition. Um, we finally elected someone who is of that mindset. But this is far more complicated than that. Well, you know, now comes the, the legislature has been debating this issue for quite some time. We came very, very close to pushing out a pilot program this year for school school choice and allowing parents to take some of that money. Um, we did. The governor tried to do this with some of the federal money that came down during the COVID relief package, and the Supreme Court of South Carolina struck it down the way he did it. So we're trying to find our way legally to make sure that when we do give folks the opportunity, we believe they'd uh, deserve with some of this school funding to, to have some choice in the matter, to put the, hand, put the decision more in the hands of the parents. We want to do it in a legal way. I think the most important thing we learned from this race the other night is um, there's a mandate for this. You know, uh, Ellen didn't just win. She, she won pretty convincingly. Nearly two to one. And there wasn't much confusion about what the two candidates left in that race stood for and where they wanted to take education in South Carolina. So, um, I would argue that the platform that Ellen stood up for is one that has a mandate in South Carolina. So uh, now uh, that's I, I get it. There's still a general election to be had and that those issues, I'm sure, will come to the forefront and there'll be a discussion before we come back to take up the issues in Columbia. But it was an important election, at least in my mind, to, to, to determine the direction we go next. But the superintendent of education can't decide on her own volition that school choice is going to be the the, the law of the land in South Carolina is relates to education. No, it, it's going to require the legislature writing the law, the, the governor, you know, going along with it and, and, and helping, you know, sell it to the people of South Carolina and not vetoing it. And we'll talk about vetoes in a minute and how that works. But, you know, he's going to be a major player in that, as is the General Assembly. Um, but the superintendent of education, you know, if they want to, you know, they can be they can be a big cheerleader for, for something like this or they can be a big opponent for something like this. They're that go-between to the districts here in South Carolina uh, to help keep the system rolling and moving forward. And Mike, you're a new fresh face in Columbia. Um, people are embracing the newer, fresher faces in politics today. Um, does it excite you that someone like Weaver got elected to such an important position? I'm actually excited you called me a fresh face, Ken. I <laughs> kind of appreciate that. Gray hair and a couple of bags under my eyes. So I've seen you selling cars on TV for 30 years, so you're not a, you're not a fresh face, but you are in the state house. I thought you were flirting with me for a minute, but I appreciate it, though, man. <laughs> you know, what I think is exciting right now is, if you look at the adage, the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. I think what we saw in that election with Ellen Weaver is that 
the the citizens and the voters of South Carolina realize that our schools have to get better. But but hoping is not a strategy. That asking teachers to work harder isn't the strategy. Putting more money into education isn't the strategy. We got to fundamentally change how we're doing education in this state because by all accounts, we are in the the last few rankings as far as public education here and our citizens deserve better. So I think it's an exciting time for Ellen because she's going to go in and she's going to shake it up. Even if you bring it home to Florence School District 1, love O'Malley, hate O'Malley. There's people on both sides. I don't think anybody can argue that FSD1 isn't better now that O'Malley has come in and has changed things. And our citizens are tired of saying, well, we're just going to be 47th or 48th or 49th. Maybe we'll get to 45th. We got to be better than that. I had a meeting with the Secretary of Commerce, uh, Harry Lightsey, uh, this past week. And he and I sat down in our office and we talked about how do we bring additional job creation and economic development here to the PD and to District 31. And the first thing he said is education is what companies look at. If they can't get an educated workforce where they want to move, it will change their determination. So are we, even within the state, as good as Greenville? or as a Charleston, or as a Lexington. If you look at many different metrics here, we in the PD, the, the, the old adage corridor of shame, right? We got to get past that and figure out how in the, the region and how in the state we change what we're doing. And that's why I'm excited about Ellen, because you can't keep doing it the same way. Let's stay, um, let's stay on, you talked about vetoes a second ago. Let's go to vetoes now. Um, you're out of session. People believe all the business is done, all the laws have been set. That's not the case. Um, I remember in my day of going back to Columbia, um, to take up vetoes. Um, now, I was lieutenant governor when Nikki Haley was governor, and the Haley-Sanford period would have been known for vetoing about everything that the General Assembly did. That's not the case now. There seems to be a more amicable relationship between the governor and the General Assembly. Are there any vetoes that you believe are more important? Mike, I'll start with you. Are there any vetoes that you believe are more important than others? There are, Ken. I think the, the vetoes that are most important are the vetoes that speak to transparency. There has been a a shroud, there's been a cloud over politics for so many years, even from what I remember, that it's the backroom deals. It's the horse trading that's done in the the smoke-filled rooms that aren't transparent. And I think that's why so many people either don't vote or they vote with very little expectation. And that's why so few citizens who would want to serve don't want to go serve because they're like, you know what? I don't want to play those games. You know, there's a couple of vetoes that, that I had to bring out that I understand why the governor vetoed them. And again, they're not bad projects. It's just, you know, there's a, a field called McKissick Field Upgrades, half a million dollars to a football field in Somerville. And the governor's position on it was, why should state funds be used to renovate a football field in Somerville? Doesn't mean a field doesn't need to be upgraded, that half a million dollars, that's state funds. That's not Somerville funds. Another big one right there was, uh, there's a cultural welcoming center in Orangeburg. They wanted $7 million. Not this, I don't know the merits of a good or bad, but $7 million to a cultural welcoming center in Orangeburg when those are statewide funds. The governor sent it back and said, that doesn't make sense. And the other really good example, again, when we talk about transparency, is there's a Greenville Educational Equity Center. And that over half a million dollars that was asked for in there by one particular legislator, governor came back and his team had realized that the CEO and director was an immediate family member of a legislator. 
that just reeks of transparency and people want transparency so the the the, the veto i mean mike's talking about transparency here um you're i don't want to ask you you know once again when i was there everything got vetoed because it was sanford and haley that mindset of you know we're going to reform the general assembly i think henry has accepted that you guys make a lot of the rules and he has to kind of play in your sandbox a bit but but what's more important to representative jordan uh, as it relates to vetoes well, you know, going back to what you just said, when because I was there when Governor Haley was there, and then you know sometimes we worked together on some some things, and sometimes most times we, we didn't. You know, that was you know I'd say now there's just the reality is there's much better communication between the governor's office and the House and the Senate. Um, there were a lot of things that the gov- Governor Haley would veto. Had there been that communication, she she may or may not have vetoed it, but there wasn't that communication. Now I think one of the main reasons why you see far less vetoes is there's good communication and a member if there's an an item in the budget or an issue they talk about it and then most of those things get resolved um, before it actually gets to the floor to be dealt with now in this particular situation you have to understand there's a lot of moving parts and some some time ran out and so some of the things that had the governor had more information he probably wouldn't have vetoed those are the things we we overrode as we did override many things contained within uh, his veto message now there were a lot of things Again, back to that partnership and that communication that he pointed out that were made sense uh, and and slipped through the cracks, so to speak. And we we sustained those vetoes and took those things out of the process. So I'd say now more than ever, uh, it's working better than it has. And it's compatible one with another. I mean, the process is working. The system is working. Um, these guys pass laws. The governor vetoes some of the laws. They have to come back and they either sustain the veto or override the veto. The math is what? I mean, the House, the math is? Two-thirds. Two-thirds, the same thing in the, in the Senate. That's and that's a, tougher to do than Sure, you, you better it believe it's um, real tardy. I mean, I saw it tried many, many, many times and, um, and not succeed. Let's go to the phone. we got one call here. Uh, we do, and it's a question for Representative Jordan. So, Jay, you might want to plug in the headphones there and make sure you can hear Harry in Florence. Hey, Harry, you're on the air with Representative Jordan and Senator Rickenbaugh. Gentlemen, hope you guys are doing well this morning. Jay, I have a question, if you don't mind. Yes, sir. I, I heard you some time ago talk about a universal business license for South Carolina, something you were working on, that where it would negate everybody having to buy individual business licenses for each individual town and municipality you worked in. Did that ever come true, or uh, is it in effect, or what is the status on that? So that's thank you, Harry. Appreciate that. Yeah, thank you for the question. That was uh, something I worked very hard on in uh, uh, last term. Um, we did get it passed. It didn't uh, quite turn out as as successful as I wanted it to. I wanted to reshape how we do business license completely in South Carolina. What we ended up with it was more of a universal um, standardization process. So uh, the answer is yes. It did go to. There's one form now where there was. You know, if you went to different municipalities, you may encounter multiple different types of forms. There's one standard date. Um, I'm hopeful that within the next year or so that you'll be able to go online and complete the process, whereas now you still have to do the form. Uh, so there's a lot of changes. Uh, that, that's obviously a statewide situation that we were trying to make better, um, and so it takes a little bit of time for the logistics to kick in. But, yes, that is still in process and, and coming, and, in fact, I just – I just uh, grit and bared it, so to speak, when I uh, paid for my business license the other day. And uh, I wish we could shrink the fees a little bit, but if we can't do that, we're at least going to make it easier on the business owner so that if they do have to get multiple business licenses across the state, it's easier for them to do and to keep up with and not have the burdens of the penalties and things like that. What sort of enforcement or compliance mechanism is associated? In other words, if a county decides, I don't like doing it the way the state said, don't I mean, you guys, I'm sure, have the ability to force 
these um, counties, municipalities to, to abide. Well, so that was one of the big problems with it. If you had a problem with the business license and you, you wanted to appeal your, your issue, you simply took it up the chain in within the confines of the municipality or the county that had the license. This way, we created a separate independent through the administrative law court in Columbia so that if you have an issue, you don't have it's not decided by the person who's, who's making the money off the off the license. It's decided by that independent uh, third party. That's interesting. Mike, I want to get your take on this. Uh, this comes from out of left field, but I'm, I'm thinking while Jay's is talking, um, fees or taxes? I mean, I know they're, they're, they're not technically taxes. They're, they're charges disguising themselves as, um, is, is it time for the South Carolina General Assembly to address the overall ability to fee? at the local government level. Um, there's a big debate about it. I and mean, I read a lot about this. There's a big debate that local governments are uh, applying too many fees to business. It's becoming far too cumbersome, far too expensive. And the General Assembly could and needs to intervene. Yeah, I think that the conversation of how much citizens pay has to come up. It has to come up in a really robust conversations. Whether you call it a fee, Ken, whether you call it a tax, it's still somebody having something come out of their pocket that they worked hard for. Now, in the, along the campaign trail, and we were crisscrossed this district over and over, I never heard people say, I'm prepared to pay no taxes and have no services. People want fire, they want EMS, they want roads, they want sewage. I mean, matter of fact, I hear people talk about, especially in some of the rural parts of the county, I spend a lot of time out in the Pamplicos and the Johnsonvilles and the Cowards. They talk about, we need better roads. We have roads that are unpaved. We have need for water. We have need for sewer. So they appreciate that it takes money to provide the services they want. But again, I'm gonna go back to the word transparency. What people want is transparency and accountability. They want to know that if they're paying an amount, whether that be for a fee or in a form of a tax, however you frame it, they want to know that it's going to be used for the purposes that it should and that government is going to run government and legislators, city council, county council are going to make decisions as a for-profit business would. You make decisions based upon returns, based upon there's a margin between how much is coming in and how much is going out. And what's the best job I can do to use those funds for the betterment of the company? Well, in this case, the company, the stakeholders are the voters. So are the decisions made with those dollars asking the very simple question, what is best for the voters? And that's what people want. Fair enough. Thanks to both of you. You want to jump in here and say something about that? No, I mean, that's going to be something we're going to have to continue to deal with. There was a lawsuit out of uh, Greenville that Supreme Court took up and said, um, whether it's a fee or a tax, if it's money uh, coming out of somebody's pocket, uh, you know, it, you can't call it a fee. It's still a tax. And so we're, we've we dealt with some legislation uh, to, to deal with it. Um, but it's not an issue that's going away. We're going to end up revisiting next year, I'm sure. Okay. As we should. Happy 4th. Happy Independence Day to both of you. And uh, we'll see you, what, a week? Now, two weeks yeah, from two weeks. tomorrow. Thanks to both of you. Mike Rick and Bob Jay Jordan will be back in just a few moments. Did Mike suggest that as a as a liner? Because he did. I mean, that that, that <laughs> he, is he wrote the, it. But that's the natural northern aggression. I mean, th- th- there's a sense of um those dumb southerners, <laughs> the, the Mississippi and, and barbecue their, line, and their barbecue but, sauce. That, How is this a southern thing? <laughs> We're in the entertainment business, Mike. It's got to be right, a northern right. southern thing. We got to have storylines and features, heels little, and good guys, con- baby faces. It, it yeah. was read incorrectly. Was it and really? I still did it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
So, so, so the voice guy read it and not the way you heard it when you so wrote the guy it. That we, you're saying. the guy that we pay to read something read it incorrectly. Yes. Apparently. Okay. That's but, see, you're you're the director of his session, so you could you could call him back and say, "Here's how I want you to say it," and he should do it. Yeah. If he was a southerner, we, he would we pay him for that. If he was a southerner, he would. <laughs> right. Let's go to the phone. John in Hartsville. Hello, John. You are on the air. Okay. Hey. Um. I would think it'd be better for us out here in Radio Land if you guys would use each other's names on a frequent basis, like when Mike is talking to Ken or blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, that'd be a practical idea. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. So I guess he's saying there's sometimes he heard a response uh, from one of the guests and he wasn't sure whether it was Senator Rickenbaugh or Representative Jordan giving the response. So okay. that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Um, but it's criticism, and we don't want criticism. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding uh, around here. Um, yeah. So, I'm so trying to read the look on your face. No, no, no. I'm trying to figure out what he said. But I'm, I'm, I heard what he said, but I'm trying to say, okay, did we not? Um, yeah, I, 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 I thought we identified. Uh, Mike, will you answer that question? Jay, yeah. will you answer that? Maybe I didn't Generally do it enough. Do. I don't know. Maybe yeah. so. Well, I tried to. Yeah. I mean, I genuinely uh, try to do the best I can. Sometimes that's not good but, enough. But John, we'll, we'll certain, try to do yeah, better for we'll, you. We'll try to do a little better <laughs> at making sure you know whether it's Mike or Jay or Philip or whomever. Um, answer the question. Now, do you ever have a question as to like when Ken is talking versus someone else? That's the question. Well, I mean, I normally talk a lot because this is what I get paid to do. I mean, right. it's four hours of uh, enlightened entertainment, and, and your your sound is pretty well established and unique, <laughs> right? Your voice uh, it's unique. I don't know how established it is. It's um, it's it's you know the the, the intersection. What did we used to say? The inter, inter, intersection of redneck, redneck and, and intellect. intellect. Yeah, redneck intellect. Um, there's a lot of redneck, very little intellect. But I do appreciate being included in any sort of um, conversation. In like, I, I want to do this real quick. I got about three minutes, and then we got a hard break, another hour in store, and then off tomorrow. Or tomorrow, we're off to a fun and frolicking uh, wake up, Carolina. Um, they revised the GDP number to negative one point six. Um, that's a big number. That's a big revision from about point three to point eight, now to point one, negative one point six. In other words. If we have another quarter of uh, contraction in our economy, we're in a recession. Uh, the technical definition of recession is consecutive quarters of so negative that was GDP first quarter growth. Revised. That was the first quarter revised, negative point, excuse me, negative one point six, which is a pretty substantial decline in um, in GDP. So you know, I I did this the other day, and we'll do it again because I've had a lot of people say, you know, why are we all of a sudden? It doesn't feel like a recession. It really does, guys. I mean, if you're talking to business owners. Um, I'll give you two practical realities here. You ready? To borrow money for a 30-year mortgage is 300 basis points more today than it was in December. That's about double. I mean, the mortgage rates have gone from about three to six, somewhere there about. I mean, it's 5.87. It was 2.87. Depends on your credit score and how much money you're borrowing and how much leverage and what sort of equity. I mean, there are a lot of variables there, but it's gone up about 300 basis points. That will create asset depreciation. Now, now, you can talk about the supply and demand. It doesn't matter to me. Um, I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're going to have a decline in the, the, the price of the homes. Uh, we've had asset inflation, unrealistic asset inflation. We're now going to find out that houses that we thought were worth 400 are really worth 325, 350, whatever that number is, that new correction number is. But here's the bigger deal, guys. Americans burn. Somewhere between 475 and 500 million gallons every day of gasoline and diesel. 
But that's what it takes to keep our trains running, to keep our, our trucks delivering goods, to get us from home to work and back home, to carry the kids to school, whatever. I mean, a nation, we burn 500 million gallons of petroleum, gasoline, and, and kerosene, excuse me, gasoline and diesel fuel every single day. At $2 a gallon, that's a billion dollars a day. At $4 a gallon, that's $2 billion a day. So there's roughly a billion dollars taken out of the economy every single day to do what we were doing for $1 billion. We're doing it with $2 billion. That's a billion that can't be spent at grocery stores, at, at convenience stores, at restaurants. And it's going to get uglier because there's not an end in sight. Mm. Back in a minute. 8436610937 is our number. This is the last day of politics, and we'd be um, derelict in our duty, uh, shirking our responsibilities if we didn't talk about uh, the story yesterday. Cassie Hutchinson appeared before the uh, well, the day before she appeared, and um, McCarthy says it's devastating. Um, Brett Baer, Fox News, says it moves the meter. Baer walked back some of his comments yesterday. Um, Andy McCarthy in National Review today has an article, basically highfalutin CYA. I mean, it really is. It's a lot of lawyer talk and word salads about, um, well, I mean, the lady didn't lie because she said everything she, uh, everything she gave in her testimony or S1 testimony were things she heard. Um, I went back and looked and I need some help here. I don't have time to do this during the break, but, um, there, there are nine members of this committee, the select committee investigating the events of January 6th, there are nine members on this committee, seven in the majority, Democrats, two in the minority, uh, Republicans. Uh, the two Republicans were appointed by Nancy Pelosi. So we've got nine members leading a select committee, uh, comprising a select committee. Uh, between the nine members, I think they have 16 votes to impeach Donald Trump. I mean, imagine that. Seven Democrats, two Republicans. Everybody on this committee has voted to impeach Donald Trump. Seven members of the nine have voted to impeach twice. Here's my question, and I need someone to dig it out or to kind of kind of help me find this. How did Shady and Kinzinger vote on the first impeachment, the abuse of power, obstruction of Congress? I mean, I know they voted uh, for the second impeachment, incitement of insurrection, but but I I don't know, and I you know I should have looked it up during the break, and I didn't. But I've got a, a lot of notes. Benny Thompson voted twice to impeach. Um, Zoe Lofgren of California voted twice to impeach. Adam Schiff of California, twice to impeach. Uh, Pete Aguilar, twice to impeach. Um, Stephanie Murphy of Florida, twice to impeach. Uh, Jamie Raskin, that rascal, uh, of Maryland, twice to impeach. Uh, Elaine Luria of Virginia, twice to impeach. The only questions I have is, how did Liz Cheney vote in the first impeachment of Donald Trump um, in the House of Representatives, Senate didn't uh, impeach and didn't convict, I guess is what I'm saying here. Uh, but the only, but I know Kinzinger and Cheney voted in, in the incitement of insurrection impeach, but, but that's just, I mean, how do you take that committee seriously? I mean, if you've got half a brain, uh, a, a, a median IQ in America, nobody would take that. Anything that comes across the desk from that committee's perspective, um, seriously. And um, as I said yesterday, and I'll repeat, if Cassidy Hutchinson is telling the truth, it's a bombshell. If the president attacked, physically attacked a member of the Secret Service detail, that's a big deal. If the president tried to commandeer a vehicle away from the, uh, the, the, the appointed driver, that's a big deal. I mean, that needs to be brought to light. We need to know uh, the blood, guts, and feathers of that. But it's a bigger bombshell if she is not telling the truth. I mean, if she's telling the truth, it's a big deal. It's a bombshell.
If she's not telling the truth, it's a bigger deal and a bigger bombshell. And I don't know whether this lady is accurately recounting uh, what she heard. McCarthy says she didn't lie because she said she heard these things. But the person she says said those things said he didn't say them. Was she prodded? And here's kind of an interesting nugget, Mike, as far as I'm concerned. Um, She's 25 years old. Uh, By my math, two years ago means she was 23. So this 23-year-old was at the epicenter of one of the most dramatic days in American democracy, if you believe what the committee's saying. I would be careful about believing what a 23-year-old, but even she's an overachiever or she's a very ambitious intern. And we got a pretty good history of not ambitious, excuse me, not uh, overachievers, but but rather ambitious interns. And uh, I need somebody to help me find out how Liz Cheney and Adam Kinziger voted in the first impeachment. Uh, that would have been the, the once again, the abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. That goes back to the Zelensky call and, you know, Trump putting pressure on Zelensky about providing him with certain information. They said that was abuse of, of power. Um obstructing congress's job to do what it is uh, they wanted to do it's just all nonsense but it's it's once again it's intended to make sure donald trump's political brand is so diminished he never decides to run for office again um but but i can't i know there are 16 impeachment votes i'm not sure if there's 17 or 18 uh, because once again i'll find it out during the next break but um if someone can look it up for me and i mean probably wikipedia I mean, I would imagine you could put first impeachment vote and Wikipedia's got a page and it'll walk you through, I don't know, the background, some of the early planning. But uh, but the committee we know had 16 impeachment votes. I just wonder whether they had, hey, that's pretty wild that the only question that we have about members of the committee is, were there 16 impeachment votes of the nine members or indeed were there 18 impeachment votes of the of the dying members we've got a call who was this hey real quick uh rev had to go take care of a uh a family matter nothing nothing emergency nothing urgent of uh, something he told me about yesterday he had to leave here at about nine this morning so rev's not here so we'll change the um the cadence of how we address the callers um who is this and where are you calling from hey this is barry hey barry hey hey um it looks like Ch- uh cheney voted uh for impeachment of Trump. Okay. Twice. Ukraine. Yes. And Kissinger did not vote the Ukraine. So uh, there's 17 impeachment votes and not 16. Yep. So, so if, it, if I'm reading it right. So if we're sports fans, it'll be 17 and one. Yep. Okay. Good deal. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate that. Yeah. I knew there'd be a caller out there um, willing to go down that road and find out. So Cheney, no surprise there. So Cheney, um, every Democrat voted twice to impeach Trump. I mean, think of this, guys. I mean, let, let's really compartmentalize this debate. We've got a committee, and this committee was challenged or, or, or basically um, given the, uh, the obligation to go find out what happened on January 6th. I mean, that, that's the task they were given. Go and fully investigate what happened January 6th uh, because nobody knows. There's all kind of conflicting stories. He said this. She said that. Uh, the Secret Service infiltrated some of the, um, some of the rioters and protesters and uh, they had guns and people were in trees and uh, Antifa was there and Black Lives Matter was there and, you know, um, Daniel Boone with horns was sitting in the speaker. I mean, there are a lot of things that, that, that are in controversy and we need to know answers. And I would argue that we need to know it all. I mean, the blood, guts, and feathers. And I think the only way you get blood, guts, and feathers 
is to have an adversarial point of view, to have cross-examination. When a lady like Cassidy Hutchinson says, um, I was told these things by someone in the, the limousine or the SUV with the president, we corroborate, we substantiate. Um, she's willing to stand there and, and I, you know, to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, they'll help me God. And someone like Jim Jordan says, um, you've said these things, but we've talked to the Secret Service. We've talked to um, some of the security detail and they don't corroborate. They say, in fact, that's not the, that's how we get to the bottom of things. And that, that's the only responsible way to handle an investigation. And it's bizarre to me. I mean, it, it's, it's a little bit freaky to me to believe. I mean, I understand morons and dummies. I get it. I mean, I understand a moron and a dummy believe anything. When it comes to Gamecock sports, I'm a moron and a dummy because I think they're going to beat Alabama and Georgia and Florida and Clemson and all those teams every year. Uh, but that's, that, that's, a, that's not a rational response. That's not a rational. I'm not a rational actor when it comes to things that I so passionately care about. Um, my three kids are the best three kids ever been on this planet. I mean, they're my, you, you believe your kids are. Um, you accept their imperfections, but it's kind of their journey through through life. That there are very that there are some things in our life that we can't help but be a moron. We can't help but be um, dumb and stupid and impractical. But when you start getting to, 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 to the bottom of how we govern ourselves and how we hold those people accountable, there has to be some objectivity. There has to be some measure of reasonableness that that we just simply not applied in any of these hearings. And um, so so Benny Thompson twice. Zoe Lofgren twice, Adam Schiff twice, Pete Aguilar twice, Stephanie Miller twice, Murphy, I'm sorry, uh, Jamie Raskin twice. Uh, that, that's just bizarre how you can be of average intelligence or better and believe that nine members on a committee who give the opportunity to vote to impeach a president 18 times took you up on it 17. And we believe these people are the arbiters of truth. These people genuinely have an interest and getting to the bottom of what? No, that they want to destroy Trump. They want to destroy America first. Now, I understand Liz Cheney's motivation because her father got enormously wealthy and her family um, made unbelievable amounts of money in the name of intervention in globalism. So, so we understand. I mean, at least I can respect Liz Cheney for carrying the family's water. I mean, they're interventionist and globalist. And interventionist globalist has been unbelievably lucrative to the Cheney brand, Cheney family, Chamley namesake. So Liz Cheney probably wears designer pantsuits to meetings because her father and her family could afford that. Uh, if America first had carried the day and we hadn't been as interventionist or as globalist, they would live more like the rest of us. But they don't live like the rest of us because they don't have to, because they capitalized on a political ideology that, that I think is unbelievably outdated and not good for the American people. That is globalist interventionism, kind of the Bush doctrine, the Bush dynasty. And that's probably the reason why when you poll Republican voters, Republicans and Republican-leaning voters about their top presidents in recent memory, number one is Reagan, number two is Trump, number three is Clinton. I mean, imagine that. Clinton is the most, the third most popular president amongst Republican-leaning voters in the last 50 years. Why? Because Clinton wasn't hell-bent on globalist interventionism. The Bushes were. And I think people have reflected now and realized that this was not sound policy. This was not in the best interest of the American people. It goes back to what Jim talks about a lot. Are we going to be a party that, that represents the interests of the worker and the family? Or are we going to revert back to this globalist interventionist tendencies um, 
that, that led to trade policies and, and business transactions with China and immigration policies that basically damaged uh, in, in a major way the livelihoods, fate, and future of the American working class. That's, that's kind of where the crux of this argument. So when you see Trump and you hear, you know, um, Cassidy Hutchinson, it's kind of a weird line to draw, but there's a line there. Cassidy Hutchinson embodies, I think, personally. Now, once again, I'm not a journalist. I'm not a reporter. I've not done any um, corroborating of stories. I'm not paid to do that. I'm paid to tell you what I think and how I feel about certain things and certain issues. I try to do it as, as genuinely as I possibly can. But but me personally, I think that Cassidy Hutchinson was a, is a 25-year-old lady who was at the time was 23. Uh, do you remember when you were 23? How impressionable were you at 23? Um, how much of an overachiever were you at 23? Or how ambitious were you? How naive were you? How gullible were you at 23? So you take a 25-year-old lady who is a bit ambitious in her, in her employment, in her moving up the ranks of the bureaucracies of our federal government, and you say to her, hey, you've got a chance to help us take out America first. Because at the core of America first is anti-establishment. I mean, Cassie Hutchinson, I would imagine, is an establishment sort. I mean, she's in her early 20s. She goes to work at the government in Washington. I mean, that, she probably had some elitist establishment connections to help her get to that point in her life at such an early age. So, so when Pelosi or Cheney or Kinzinger or Schiff or somebody pays her a visit, you don't think they talk a little about the America First movement? And how much of a threat it may or may not pose to her practical realities. You know, where she'd like her life to end up at a certain point in time. Um, Cassidy Hutchinson's life is probably better off if they're in an America first. Or if America first is so disparaged that it ceases to gain the support of the majority of people in America today. That's the trouble with all this. I mean, that's kind of the, um, I mean, I don't want to say Trump's the micro because he's not. Trump is always the macro. He's always the crux of the story because he's so uh, commanding and controversial. I mean, people like that always place themselves at the center of whatever story we're dealing with. But, but the crux of the matter, and I think Cassidy Hutchinson embodies something that, that is very establishment and elitist, and I don't want to say globalist and interventionist. I don't know where she stands on any of those, but she doesn't like the Hayseeds, Hillbilly, and, and Cowboys having a lot to say about the way we govern and police our country's political affairs. Uh, somebody's on the phone. Let's go there. Hello, you're on the phone. Hey, hey good morning. It's Jim. And hey, Jim. How are you, sir? Doing well. So is Liz Cheney mad at Donald Trump, and or is she mad at us? I'll take it off the air. Thank you, John. I think she's mad at both. I mean, I think Liz Cheney despises um, you and I because you and I, and a Jim in particular, that's a good caller to say this, um, Jim talks a lot about this pro-worker, pro-family uh, political party, uh, this political movement that's kind of um, – gained a lot of traction within a party that has historically been, um, you know, I, I, I still argue that modern intellectual conservatism is kind of the rouge for this globalist interventionist, pro-China, pro-trade, pro-global trade, um, no immigration policy, open borders. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Cheney, I think Cheney is, is a little bit, I think her, she's a complicated figure in this. Because I think her personal disdain for Trump, the man, is is the ah, it's the secondary force. I think the primary force 
is her family benefiting so enormously off of a a globalist interventionist political party that kind of um, disguised itself as modern intellectual conservatism. Uh, the George Wills and William Buckley's, we've had this conversation uh, many, many, many times. But no, I mean, I think Liz Cheney, I mean, right now in her life, I think she hates everybody. I mean, I think she hates her Republican base. I think she hates many of her Republican um, cohorts. I think she hates, ah, hates a strong word. I think she strongly dislikes. I think she strongly dislikes the political realities that she's having to live with today. Um, here's what I would argue, Jim, um, speaking specifically to Jim. I would argue when Cheney lays down at night, how reflective and introspective is she? In other words, when Cheney lays down at night, knowing her family has amassed a fortune uh, because government worked a certain way, there's no regret. I mean, I, I'll assure you that there is no regret whatsoever. Is there any guilt? I mean, when Cheney lays down at night in her quiet moments with no one but herself, does she introspectively evaluate her political and her family's political life? And does she say, wow, we did savage the American middle class. We did export uh, wage growth. We did intervene in foreign affairs and send 18 and 19 and 20-year-old kids to get killed in wars that were ordained or orchestrated by the executive office. My father in particular had a lot to do with leaning on President George W. Bush, convincing him these were just and righteous and in the name of, you know, national security and global global safety. I, that's the question I would ask. You know, regret? No. I mean, she doesn't regret anything because she's kind of a political animal. Their family are political animals. But does she have any moment of regret, uh, excuse me, of guilt where she says, my life is unbelievably um, financially advanced, but but what about these people that, that kind of were the victims or caught up in the crosshairs or, or in the web? They are the web of the, the, the Bush doctrine, my father's policies. That, that would be such an interesting question. In other words, if you could get into the brain of Liz Cheney in her quietest of moments, how does she hash all of that out? Because I think she knows she's a dead woman walking when it comes to politics. I mean, I think she saw the deal with Russell and Tom Rice, and she kind of knows what's headed her way. I mean, she's going to go kicking and screaming, and she's going to raise as much hell as she can before she leaves town. But that would be the more interesting question to me, not whether she dislikes us. Yes, she dislikes us. She doesn't regret what she's done, but is there any honest guilt? Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Thursday morning, great television senior national editor, White House correspondent John Decker is with us this morning. John is actually, I think, traveling with the president in Madrid, Spain. Good morning, John. How are you? Hey, I'm well, Ken. That's right. I've been with the president uh, traveling here for the NATO summit. Uh, the president just concluding uh, his press conference, and now he's flying back to the U.S. I have to, uh, for me, to remain in Madrid for a day or so. Uh, but uh, look, this is a consequential summit. Uh, we saw the addition of two members to NATO. It still needs to be formalized, but that will happen very quickly. Of course, we're talking about Finland and also Sweden. And also, we heard about some of the most significant expansion of U.S. troops in Europe since the Cold War, President Biden announcing that yesterday. John, uh, there's some early reporting I got on Twitter during the break. I said, let me be careful with Twitter. I get that. But it is um, it is something people refer to now um, about Biden making remarks that he supports changing 
some of the Senate rules to codify Roe v. Wade. You and I have not spoken since the um, the groundbreaking news Friday of Roe v. Wade being overturned. Um, what do you know, if anything, about his remarks supporting changing Senate rules to codify Roe? Well, here's what I uh, like to look at. I like to look at the big picture. So let's just say for argument's sake that's true. I don't think that is true. But let's say for argument's sake that's what the president supports. Uh, the problem is is that you don't have the numbers in the Senate right now to do that. Uh, Joe Manchin is a firm no. Kirsten Sinema from Arizona is a firm no. And unless you have those two Democrats on board, there will be no changes in the Senate filibuster rules. Uh, and so that is what we're going on. Let's go a step further, Ken, if I could, uh, to what happens after the midterms. Let's say that Democrats uh, remain in control of the Senate. Uh, they'd also need... Uh, in terms of uh, amending any type of law, they'd need to have control of the House as well. And I don't think they're going to have that after the midterm elections. I think that Republicans are going to retake control of the House after the midterms. Let's shift gears and go to January 6th. We had a um, uh, kind of a big story a couple of days ago with a lady named Cassidy Hutchinson who reported, obviously, I mean, honestly, she didn't say she saw these things, uh, but she, someone told her, recounted um, these events. I've read... From um from Andy McCarthy of the National Review, Brett Barrett, Fox News, who you would expect to be a little more sympathetic to the Republicans or conservative movement, um they they've argued that this moved the meter in the debate of culpability or not with Donald Trump. Well, what do you say to that news and and where are we in uh, the January sixth special committee's meeting? Well, I think that you know as it relates to former President Trump, you know I'd, I'd have a hard time convincing a real strong. Uh, Trump supporter that it's moved in the meter because they're very loyal to the former president. But I think if you look at the Republican Party as a whole, uh, and I've spoken to so many Republicans, uh, those who voted for Donald Trump uh, twice in 2016 and 2020, very supportive of him, uh, who say at this point uh, in the election cycle, looking at all the way ahead to 2024, he is damaged goods. Uh, That's the reason why you have so many Republicans who are already making plans to run for the White House in 2024. Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, uh, Nikki Haley, the list goes on. It's probably a dozen uh, Republicans. And so they're not holding back. The the field is not frozen. They're not scared off by Donald Trump because they do view him right now as damaged. But, John, what if, I mean, hypothetically, and you're not in the hypothetical business, I kind of am, what if um, we find out that Cassidy Hutchinson did not tell the truth? Um, so some of the corroboration of the Secret Service and some of the, you know, the driver. What, what, if, what if we get a week down the road or two weeks down the road and find out that indeed um, her sworn testimony is not accurate? Does it diminish? Because a lot of people are already suspect of this committee. Uh, but but what, what does it do to the mindset of the average American voter if we find out this lady was not telling us the truth? Well, she was testifying under penalty of perjury, uh, sworn testimony, uh, and uh, I have not seen anything to indicate that she was not telling the truth because the people that may be denying that they said what she said they said or did what they said she did have not been under oath. They have not been sworn in. Uh, And so I always go, as a lawyer, 
with someone who understands that you tell the truth when you're in a setting where you need to abide by the truth. And so I can't get to your hypothetical, Ken, because I don't see anything changing the situation as it relates to her testimony in any way. Unless one of these people, you know, testify as a, uh, you know, under oath. I mean, if they do that, then they're they're obviously putting themselves in a position to be in, you know, charged with perjury. So I, I don't know. This is it's kind of an odd situation anyway. Um, and I just think the committee would have been such so much better served if we'd have some adversarial points of view and cross-examination of some of this information to witnesses. But here we are, you know, about to conclude. Well, and as you well, said, blame, mo- most blame Americans that. have kind of made their minds up. Yeah, blame that on, on Kevin McCarthy. He's the one who decided to, you know, take all the marbles and, and go home as opposed to just simply uh, naming two additional people to replace Jim Jordan and another Republican congressman who was uh, rejected by the House Speaker. If he simply did that, then we would have had the procedure that you're talking about. That was a very poor political judgment on his part, and we're seeing the ramifications of that poor political judgment on his part. I don't think, by the way, separately, uh, when, not if, but when Republicans take control of the House of Representatives, Ken, I don't think Kevin McCarthy, for all of his confidence, I don't think he's going to be the next Speaker of the House. I think it's going to be Steve Scalise. That's interesting. Thank you, John. Safe travels, and we will talk not next Thursday because we're actually on vacation, but we'll catch up in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much for your time, and take care. Thanks, Ken. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Um, See, that would have been, if I'm ever going to be disrespectful, that would have been the time. But John is such a... Uh, you know, a stalwart of our show, and he does give a very interesting perspective that most local radio shows would never get. Um, but it's not Kevin McCarthy's fault. I mean, we can go back to the world of, um, you know, of, of talk radio. This is not Kevin McCarthy's fault. Kevin McCarthy offered up pro-Trump Republicans to advocate on behalf uh, of the former president's side of the story. And the speaker said, no, those aren't the Republicans or those aren't the kinds of Republicans I want. And, and if I were going to take John to task, and I'm not, because great television um, has, has allowed us to have someone as a feature on our show once a week who is inside the belly of the beast. I mean, he's a seasoned and very accomplished reporter uh, in Washington, and I, I just don't want to step on those toes. I'm sorry. Um, you know, that's kind of a – it's a little bit, Michael, like, like the argument we made earlier. I know what my heart says. But politically, I kind of got to go over here. I mean, you don't know how bad I wanted to push back on um, it's not McCarthy's fault. I mean, it's absolutely not Kevin McCarthy's fault. Kevin McCarthy um, put two people in front of the speaker that he knew were going to, in a bulldogish way, support President Trump's side of the story, advocate on his behalf. And she said no. Never before in American history has a majority done that to a minority never in american history has a majority uh, member of a of a select committee said to the minority member um you can't put those people on here and what she was basically implying you can't put those kind of people on here and the kind of person she's talking about is someone who believes in america first who will vehemently support and defend president trump and his side of the story and if it weren't john decker and he weren't so gracious and kind of allow us into that world a little bit, I would have really pushed back. But that's when you kind of very often do I bite my tongue, but but I kind of bit my tongue then out of, uh, I don't know, deference and respect. Let's go to the phone. Who is this and where are you calling from? This Bobby. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. We'll hear you loud and clear, Bobby. Okay, good. All right, I'm I'm beginning to like Mr. Decker less and less every week. I don't know what's happened. It seemed like... Uh, 
Seems like he's changed some. No, Bobby, uh, I'll, I'll tell you this, and Rev and I've talked a lot about it. John is, I mean, John is an establishment reporter. He's been there forever, um, but he's very connected. He he knows where the bodies lie. But 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 don't forget, this guy is an establishment media member who has been in the belly of that beast for many 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 years. And if you and I and he were having a drink together, I'm sure he would tell you that he doesn't care much for Trump showing up and this America First movement. But I do think it's interesting that we get a look into the mind of someone who has been there forever and understands the the, the minutiae of how that world works. Oh, yeah, I got no problem with that. But uh, let, let me do uh, tell you this. Have, I don't know if you were able to listen to uh, Dan Bongino yesterday. A little bit, but, not uh, much, but but he, he gives a perspective because he was in Secret Service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to ask if if maybe you heard that because he he really uh, seems to me kind of shot it down. You know, the, the, this this was impossible for this to happen. It was impossible for this to happen. And you're talking about someone that just like you talking about John, eh, where he where he comes from. I mean, Dan Mangino, he was he was there. He was in the Secret Service. So it's it's easier when somebody's coming from that background when they see a falsehood. It's it's just really easy to identify. I mean, think about. You know, whatever careers that you've had, you worked in that career, you know it. And uh, when you hear something, you say, wait, that's not how it works. Uh, I didn't know if you might have heard that. I heard a good bit of that. Thank you, Bobby. Appreciate that. Here's the here's the data that I think matters. I mean, you've got opinion. I've got an opinion. John's got an opinion. Freehold's got an opinion. The ref's not here, but he's got. We all have opinions, and we all want to believe things we want to believe in. But But here's the cold, hard truth, and I think this is the most important data point. Benny Thompson was given two chances to impeach Donald Trump, and he did both times. Zoe Lofgren was given two chances to impeach Donald Trump, and she or he did. I think it's a she. She did. Um, Adam Schiff was given two chances to impeach Donald Trump or not, and he impeached. Pete Aguilar, two chances, both times he did. Stephanie Murphy, given two chances to impeach, not to reprimand, not, not to chastise, not to say, man, I wish he'd shut up. Not not to go meet the press and argue a point of view. No, she was given two chances to impeach a president of the United States or not, and she did. Jamie Raskin, 2-0 and on impeachments. Elaine Luria of Virginia, 2-0 and on impeachments. Liz Cheney, Republican, was given two chances, and both times she voted to impeach. Adam Kinzinger was given two chances. He did one time. He did not one time. So the people that are trying to pursue the truth, the people the federal government are asking we the people to trust in hot pursuit of the truth of what happened on January 6th are 17 and 1 when it comes to impeachment or not. Not 17-1 on disagreeing with policy. Not 17-1 on disagreeing with the Commerce Secretary or Transportation Secretary, Supreme Court Justice. They were given the chance to impeach an American president. Do we know how rare that is? I mean, it's unbelievably rare, but in Trump's four years, he was impeached twice. So Donald Trump has a badge of honor for every other year he was in Washington. The body chose to impeach, never convicted, only impeached. That's the only data point that matters. And when John says it's Andy McCarthy's fault, you know, I'm um, excuse me, it's, um, uh, what's his name? I'm getting Andy McCarthy mixed up with. Anyway, it's the, what's his name? Uh, McCarthy, who wants to be speaker. Why can't I think of his first name? I'm not going to ask a caller to call in and, 
and tell me that, but Kevin McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, I'm sorry. Oh, wow, brain fade there for a second. When, when John says it's Kevin McCarthy's fault, it's not Kevin McCarthy's fault. Kevin McCarthy told Nancy Pelosi who he wanted to put on the committee, and she said, that's not who I want on the committee. And McCarthy did exactly what I think he should do. He took his ball and went home, as John said. He said, I'm not going to participate in that committee. Well, the only two Republicans that would participate are the two that hate Trump as much as the Democrats do. That's Liz Cheney and Andy McCarthy. I mean, excuse me, I'm Adam Kinzinger. So it's it's a it's a it's a deck. I mean the 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 deck is stacked. It's it's obvious they have no interest in the truth because if they had an interest in the truth, we'd have cross examinations. We'd have adversarial points of view. We're not allowed to have any of that. It's a love fest for Trump haters. I mean that's what it is. It's a TV production and a love fest for people who hate Donald Trump and believe that Trump is the scourge on the uh, on the political scene in America today. And I. I, I just I find that reprehensible. I find it disgusting that our American political system would allow itself to become that one-sided and that consumed by wanting to hold and maintain uh, power. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Is someone on the phone? Let's go to the phone real quick. Caller, who is this, and where are you calling from? Hello. Hey, you're on the air. Oh, I'm sorry. Hi, hi Ken. As always, I love your show. Um, here, I mean. There's so much that could be said about all this, but here's here's my comment uh, to kind of sum up how I feel about it. I would bet money, a fair amount of money, that Trump will never be indicted for any of this January 6th stuff because then he would get to call witnesses. He would get all, he would reveal all the hearsay testimony. He would call Nancy Pelosi. He would call, well, he would call the sergeant at arms, but I think he's, he's dead now. He would call the mayor of Washington, and he would get his turn to question people under oath and bring his witnesses to testify under oath. And that's why you, you'll never convince me that Merrick Garland will indict him because he knows exactly what I just said. This is just a show trial to show as much negative dirt and that they can sling up against the wall against Trump and just because they want to do all they can to damage him for as long as they can. But they're not going to indict him, and you can bet on that. I agree with you. Thank yeah. you for the call. Appreciate it. The indictment allows adversarial points of view, cross-examination, uh, discovery, witnesses, um, who's telling the truth, who isn't. Um, yeah, it's a show trial, and they've never had any intent to indict. I'll totally agree with that because, once again, that invites a, a fair trial. And we're not getting a fair trial with this stacked deck. Take a break. Back in a minute. The reason we're living in such a controversial political age, and I would argue it's somewhat revolutionary. I mean, it's not, you know, the Boston Tea Party. It's not, uh, you know, firing on Fort Sumter. I mean, I'm not arguing it's any of that. But there, there's an enormous amount of intensity in our political world today. And, and we generate some of that. I mean, Tall Radio is responsible for generating some of that. But the argument I've tried to make, and, and I think if I were in an academic setting trying to be um, cordial to those sorts of folks, I would, I would describe it like this. For years and years and years, the left had the courts at their side. In other words, Roe v. Wade and some of the other legislation, we had liberal judges uh, rendering decisions that ended up in their, in their lap on their doorstep at the Supreme Court. And, and that changed. So when, when the judges, excuse me, when the, when the courts became a little more conservative, 
um, not not conservative in general, but a little more conservative. Um, the left had to continue to push their agenda forward. They couldn't always depend on the court. Once Clarence Thomas and John Roberts, I mean, in other words, there's some squishiness in the court. That's when they began bullying and intimidating, and the right would back down. You know, the, what I call the establishment right would back down. They 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 were uh, suspect of bullying and and intimidation. Um, so what's happened is. The, this this America First movement refuses to back down. You want to fight, you'll get one. Uh, I don't want to say January 6th is a result of that, but I mean, I think in some way, shape, or form, it led to that. There's no way establishment Republicans would ever try to, quote, unquote, take matters into their own hands. And I don't think anybody was trying to decertify an election. They were there to express their political displeasure. But uh, intimidation and bullying worked for a long time. Now the left can't intimidate. Because the, the America Firsters won't back down. They can't bully for the same reason, and they can't depend on the courts. And that's why we've got this extreme intensity in American politics today. And my question is, um, they've been that committed for a long time. The liberal left, the radical left, I mean, they, they've been to the interest of, of t- counting on the courts, uh, bullying, intimidation. All that has gone to the kind of the devil's brew of how they get things done. Well, they woke up one day. They don't have the courts in their pocket because of what Trump has done with the U.S. Supreme Court, they don't have the bullying factor at their avail, and America First just refuses to be intimidated. So it's going to be volatile. It's going to be very confrontational. I think it's necessary. I mean, I think to, to expect this to play out in a peaceful, cordial, respectful kind of way is just not believable. It's almost like I'm going to play Alabama, and, and you know I'm not wearing my shoulder pads. Well, you get exactly what you deserve. You get your brains beat out, your body broken up. I think once you take intimidation, bullying, and the advantages the courts gave the left out of the equation, you're going to have a battle. And here we are. Uh, I am sure the left is committed to this battle. Will this newfangled right, and by that I mean uh, the America Firster, that has so much passion in in what they believe and what they stand for. Once again, it's in its infancy. I mean, it's not even crawling yet. Excuse me, it's not even walking yet, much less running. It's probably the crawling stage. But um, that's just an interesting political dynamic that, that we're in the middle of as we speak. Take a break. Back in a minute. 